John, I can't tell you how excited I am about the Cinephile's new sponsor, an absolutely incredible game, Marvel Strike Force. Now, anyone who's listened to the show knows that I've been reading comic books since I was five years old, and this is like a comic book fan's dream come true. You could create a mobile squad and play as your favorite Marvel characters. I mean, everyone is there. The Punisher, Vision, Black Panther, Cap, or even my favorite Marvel character of all time, Daredevil. Your goal is to power up those characters, unlock gear, and use them to compete in player versus player mode, alliance mode, and real-time arena. Yes, Stephen, as we speak, they are enjoying their six-year anniversary. Six years, wow. And you know what that means? Free stuff just for signing up via their unique link in the description. The anniversary consists of weekly events and bonuses. If you complete each event, you can receive special rewards and skins. Completing every single mission throughout the entire anniversary will result in an even more special reward. Make sure to log in each day and each week to take advantage of all the new characters that are being released specifically for this event. This will be Marvel Strike Force's most generous event to date, so don't miss out, y'all. Check out that unique promo code, and for every new user, please follow our link in the description and use the promo code MAXPOOL. Once again, thank you so much to Marvel Strike Force. We're very, very excited to have you sponsoring this episode. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. I hope the block is still standing. We're still standing. Hello and welcome once again to The Cinephiles, where each week we enter the world of a great film and we explore its themes, the history, the filmmaking, and the influence it has on us today. My name is Steve Morris. I am a filmmaker and directing instructor in Los Angeles, California. Hello, everyone. My name is John Roke. I'm a writer, producer, and host on the Outlaw Nation channel uh, and proud co-host of the Cinephiles. Excited to be jumping into another episode of our season of Lee today, Steve. And this is, of course, concluding, I hope, I sincerely hope we will be concluding our discussion of Do the Right Thing with our very special guest, uh, director, writer, actor, producer, voiceover guy, Andre Gordon. Welcome back to the Cinephiles. I'm so happy to be here for our 75,000th episode together. <laughs> Breaking down Spike Lee's genius. That's right. I always, I always wonder if like, if, if, if Spike Lee or one of these directors we talk about, here's what we're doing. He goes, wait, they talked for how long? <laughs> like, they did what? I would um, hope they would come on the show at that point. Come on. Uh, I'd love it. I yeah. absolutely love it. Uh, so, where we left off, Mookie had taken a long break by going to his place to take a shower, and now he and Jade are leaving. Um, and at this moment, Bugging Out is heading around the neighborhood to try to get support for the boycott of Sal's. He goes to the mayor, no, no help there. He goes to the guy sitting on the corner, who one of them says, Timmy, what you ought to do is boycott that goddamn barber that fucked up your head. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, he goes to like the gang of young people and they're like, we grew up on Sal's. We love Sal's. What are you talking about? And then 
Sal is at his window giving an ice cream cone to a young girl. And he looks, seems genuinely sweet, I think, in this moment. With yeah. Sal, we're going to boycott your fat pasta ass. And Sal goes from sweet to pissed. You're going to boycott me? You haven't got the balls to boycott me. Uh, here's your boycott. Here's your boycott. Kind of flipping <laughs> him off in, the, in Italian. But, like, you know, bugging out makes a switch. And this is... You mentioned uh, Giancarlo's acting earlier, Steve, in, in our previous parts, and certainly his switch from being kind of like a bit of a goofy dude, hanging out with them, getting occasional upset, you know, walking around, having the back and forth with Mookie and whatever, um, and then Pino, um, or Vito rather, and and then showing up to Sal. It is in this moment where he kind of jumps up into Sal's face and shocks yeah. him there's a real anger here and then later when he shows up with radio raheem that whole kind of goofy aspect or that's all gone there is legitimate frustrating anger underneath this guy that's kind of surprising to see and unsettles you when you're watching you know john i think that's a great point because i i also think that spike it seems as though this is where he's starting to show the cracks in all of the characters like the major cracks because We've seen Sal reprimand his son. You know, he he's cursing at him, but he's still like, hey, you're my boy. I'm trying to raise right. But this is where we start to see a little bit more aggressive side of Sal. Like a little bit of a teeny bit of a foreshadowing of what he's capable yeah. of. He's taken a lot of abuse up until this point. And, you know, the 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 language of the block seems to be to abuse each other and handle it. But yeah. this is a little bit different. Well, there's a th- I'll say it really quick. There's a, a theory from a psychiatrist called named Ernst Becker called pseudopods. And the idea of a pseudopod is you place your identity into an external thing. So if you're a, a broker and you've made millions of dollars, that millions of dollars is you. If you lose that money, you jump out the window. You know, oh. someone hits your car. You say you hit my car and that car becomes part of you. Sal's is his pseudopod. Yeah. When bugging out is coming after Sal. Yeah, it's more. I think he takes that more personally than someone just yelling at him, you know. And and, and I think John, the point you make is so right. And I, and I, what I wonder is, I wonder if the neighborhood had been less dismissive of bugging out, if he would have been actually less angry, you know. Yeah, you you cannot deny the power of being heard. Uh, sometimes people will calm down once they understand that you've heard them you don't have to agree with them you don't have to follow what they said but to hear them it gives them credibility and giving them credibility the anger and the hate sometimes will dissipate or at least calm down and that's a great point dad never thought of that that if people had given him a little more credibility had talked to him had not reacted so strongly you know uh uh, robin harris making fun of his haircut the kids go and tell him to get the hell out of here because they were they were raised on sal's pizza mookie tell him stop messing with my job you know, no one's going along with him. None of the elders or the oh, the younger people in the generations there are going along with him. And maybe if someone had, other than radio, who was his own, you know, kind of instigator in a way, uh, it would have been fine. I just had a full epiphany about this, mm. which is, you know, what's I think even a bigger factor is that what we also saw Bugging Out do is essentially publicly chicken out when he was yelling at a guy who went over his Jordans right. is that he, yep. he is that he did not actually follow through. And he, I think was embarrassed at yep. that moment. But when he had the group around him and his Jordans got ran over, he was being heard and he was being pumped up, but he was scared to actually make a move against one guy. Yeah. One white guy. 
So I think everything you guys are saying, I mean, white people are great. I love them. Um, <laughs> my wife, I love you, wife. Uh, but um, yeah, I, I think everything you're saying is really on point. And, and I love the uh, psychological aspect you guys uh, attack this from because it's really, it's really accurate. So, and then who does Bugging Out run into after Sal's as he runs into Mookie and his sister? And he's talking about boycotting and why they're boycotting. And Mookie wants no part of it. You're wasting my time. You just leave that shit alone. You should. You really should. Hey, yo, move. I'm gone. And Mookie heads off. And of course, what does Bugging Out say as Mookie's leaving? Stay black, Mook. <laughs> and then we're with Bugging Out and Jade. And she is trying, he's trying to convince her to be down with this boycott of Sal's. Jade, you got to be down. What you, what you ain't down? Yeah, Bugging Out, I'm down. But I'm down for something positive in the community. Are you down for that? Listen, these are the, we hear the complaints about this all the time. Now, I mean, certainly more people are, the last few years, it seems like the world is more politically active than ever. And people are like, great, you're tweeting about this. Oh, great, you're posting this. What else are you doing besides, you know, just picking a fight, causing problems doing all this kind of thing are you being part of an organization are you contributing uh financially to a charity are you doing something to help other than raising um issues and i think this is a great point in 1989 this is him, <laughs> this is having a, a a dialogue here is jade is probably the, the the most pure person in the movie that we see throughout she is. she is the one that's telling the truth she's the one that's putting on the table and she calls out bugging out going yeah this all, all this anger is great Putting a black black people on the wall. What the hell is that going to solve? It's still going to. It's not going to end racism. You got to do more than that. And that's what he's she's saying to him because he's taking the easy way out. Let's just boycott and cause trouble and cause mayhem. Well, how do we fix things so we don't get to this point in the future? That's what needs to be worked on. I'm going to say something that you're that you're going to have. Maybe you'll forgive me for it. Maybe you won't. Which no. is that is that I a hundred percent absolutely love what jade says here i think yeah. it's fantastic i think it's super important to the movie i think her point is really well made i also think because she is the most pure character in this film she's also maybe the least interesting character in this film huh? to me you know because yeah. everyone else is so complicated and flawed and hard to understand and jade is just kind of straightforward and like it's not a is not an interesting as character yeah yeah oh hmm. fair enough you know what the the thing about that though is when you're black and you're in that scenario, those surroundings, it's actually quite difficult to be the least interesting because you're only the least interesting because you're the most put together. So there's mm -hmm. struggle in being put together in that scenario because people are not only chastising you for a selling out, but it's the stay black. That is what she's doing, her life, her life's direction is sometimes seen as the antithesis of staying black. Right. Some may look right. at her as the sellout. So I think um, it's the most advantageous for life's direction. Uh, but there is a complexity in staying black, quote unquote, while also being what is deemed uh, sellout successful. Mm. So uh, for her, you know, just, just thinking about what you said, I see how that seems on the surface. But there is a complexity in that as well. Managing both worlds. I, I wish someone had, I wish we had that thing that you just said in the movie. I wish, I wish somehow someone came out, came at yeah. Jade to bring that to the fore, because I actually think that is super interesting what you just said. You're pushing it, monkey. You're really pushing it. I don't pay you good money to have you jerk me around. 
And we got to say, this is the third time he took a long break so far this day. Like Mookie, you know, he is pushing it. And then I, I just want to comment on this one line. He Sal says, now you keep it up, you're going to end up in the street with the rest of your homeboys. Woo. I, the, I firmly believe you should not use other people's slang that is not your own, yeah. that you should be very, very careful. And, and, and him saying homeboys here is really problematic for me. Yeah, I don't disagree with that. And, and this is the beginning of the turn on Sal, right? Yep. I mean, the, the going back at bugging out and then a little bit of this. So you, you can see Sal is getting a little more and more irritated to the point where we see what's going to happen with Radio Raheem later. Yeah, the homeboy remark is where, you know, we, we've seen Sal <clears throat> defend black people and, mm. and express his love and gratitude and almost sees themselves as one of the block. So the homeboy line, it's the first time we start to see, oh, uh, you know, we start to see something different. You know, we see something yeah. a little bit different. And then we've seen how he's feeling about Mookie. And in the next moment, everything changes. Because in the next moment, Jade walks in. Jade, where you been? Hi. Just working hard, keeping busy. How's business going? Business is great. You know, we were we were wondering when you're going to stop by and pay us a visit. <laughs> and this scene is real weird because <laughs> she first of all asks how, how her brother's doing, and he goes, "Oh, Mookie, he's great. He's a good kid." Um, and then she orders a regular slice, and he says, "No, no, I'm gonna I'm gonna make you something special, something very special, if you don't mind." And the camera goes to Mookie's face, watching this. And then it pans over to Pino's face. And for the only time in the movie, they are together in not liking what they're seeing. Yeah. My question is, what are they seeing? I, I don't see this as a nefarious scene at all. This is an older man. He's grown. He's seen Jade from when she was probably a child. So there's a very, he's probably always had respect for her. She's probably been uh, wise beyond her years. So he's always appreciated that, you know, and people are going to twist it in a certain way. But the fact that the two people, you know, the guy who keeps taking the long breaks and the guy who keeps sitting out there, you know, not doing much work himself, but complaining about black people the whole time. It's no surprise that those two limited minds are looking at this situation and concocting something they don't like. And that is black and white working together. This is a scene where black and white work together. Black guy, The white guy is going back there to make something for her special because he appreciates her. He respects her. He likes her as a person. So he's doing that. And there's no, to me, there's no sexual thing at all. This is an older man really appreciating you. He almost treats her like his niece. Uh, and I thought, and I kind of like that moment, to be honest. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to withhold my thoughts because <laughs> actually the scene movie cuts away for a moment. Yeah. So let's cut away. And then we're going to come back to them because the next thing we see is radio Rahim and fight the powers starting to slow down. Yeah. And so and I just love the moment. It's like his superpower has gone away. Like he's hit his kryptonite. You always um, music, man. Um, and he heads off uh, to the Korean grocery store and, oh, it's terrible. It just, he walks in with this anger and demands his 20, 20 D energizers, which man, that's a that's a lot of batteries. <laughs> and they don't quite understand what he's saying. And he says, D, motherfucker, D. Learn to speak English first, all right? D. And we're again, we're in that Dutch angle, that 10 millimeter lens. And then 
his, the the wife, the Korean woman, asks. She doesn't quite understand, and he yells at her. Twenty motherfucker, twenty. And I don't know, man, John. If yeah. if someone yelled at Lindley and called her a motherfucker, like, well, well, how would you feel? Yeah, again, uh, we're at a point here where we see characters that all have a twinge of, of racism to them when it's convenient for them, right? I mean, Radio Rahim is playing fight the power, but here he is as a person of power over the Korean community in this community, using his power to inflict racism on the Korean grocer and his wife. So to me, this is Spike showing you that racism bleeds downhill and has always bled downhill in this country. And so in this moment, yeah, it could be a simple moment that he's being a dick to these, and he is being a dick. I don't care what anybody says. He's being a dick to these two gro- Korean grocers. Oh yeah. Nothing. Telling them to, to learn the language. Where have we heard that before uh, uh, from certain people and, and telling him to, uh, telling them to, to 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 clarify and then call them the motherfuckers like that is super disrespectful. I have a product that you need. All right, <laughs> you want the product that I got? Call me a fucking ass down. Put your money on the goddamn table and tell me what you need and explain it to me so I can get it for you. Insulting me is a disrespect and a sense of superiority that Radio Rahim has not earned nor should he possess in this situation. Oh, yeah. And it's interesting because they they do it to Sal too. Yes, they go mm-hmm. in and they and they yell at Sal. Yeah, for, for the pizza that he need, it's his store. It, it, it's so true. I that part of that always baffled me. You're going into someone's establishment and you're berating them to give you something that they don't owe you, reserve the right to refuse service, and and they and then they they get angry. The, John's heard me say this many times. Yeah, people that yell at waiters, people who work in stores, oh, yeah. people like that is just there's nothing that pisses me off more of that sense of entitlement and disrespect. I just really, really bugs me. And I'll say something else. And I want to say this in the right way, which is what I'm about to say has nothing to do with Radio Rahim being a black man. There is a, there is a clear kind of well-established fear of black bodies in America. And that fear has caused all sorts of trauma. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is he's a big man. And as a big man myself, I walk around as a big person and you have to be aware yeah. That people who don't know you, that can be just intimidating just when you bring your size into someone's space, mm-hmm. you know. And so and and I believe Radio Rahim should be aware of that. And actually, because and again, this is my philosophy. My philosophy is that because I'm a big man, I must be even more gentle yeah. than 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 normally because I because I've had the situation where I scared someone just because of my size, you know, and like that's a big thing. Yeah, especially on planes. Uh, yeah, you yeah. have to be aware of how you're fitting in the seat. People think you're trying to kind of intimidate them. You're not yeah. aware. Mm-hmm. I, I, I had a, in Aikido, I had a woman come in and she was very small and I was partnered with her and she literally started to cry. <laughs> and because she was so scared at having to throw a punch at this big, huge person. And what I, I told her, I'm like, look, I'm the gentlest person on this mat. Like I'm going to, but, but it was scary for her. She went through a real emotional thing. Anyway, um, so Radio Rahim leaves the Korean market and there is the mayor who buys some flowers and we follow him with the flowers. And of course we know where he's going and he goes up the steps and hands them off to mother sister. And then he talks about how hard it is to smell nice things in the summer. All you smell is garbage. Smell overpowers everything, especially the soft, sweet smell of flowers. You don't mind. I'm going to sit right here. 
catch myself a breeze or two and then I'll be on my way. And then he doffs his hat and goes away. And I love, you know, watch Mother Sister, watch Ruby D, because she doesn't look at him. And then she looks at the flowers and then she starts to smile. And then she looks at where the, the mayor was. Yeah. I love this scene. I, I love this whole sequence because the only time that uh, the mayor has bought something, he begged for money to get it. But up until this point, the money from the beginning of the movie, he used to buy the beer that he loves. Right. Right. And then mm-hmm. he actually, uh, we, we see him go and purchase flowers when yeah. this guy doesn't have two nickels to rub together. And I just thought that was a a great a great uh, writing implement by Spike, and uh, just uh, the the writing. I'm going to sit here and catch a breeze. Catch a breeze. Ah, oh, yeah. I just felt like I was in a moment with them. It was beautiful. Yeah, yeah. Like I said, I'm still very happy to have the. I would have the mayor and mother sister TV show. Like, <laughs> just to, I would I would follow them for a whole, their whole lives. I love them so much. Tonight um, on the mayor. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um. Radio Rahim walks by the corner men. They are not not happy about this. Um, and then they have a very funny scene, which I won't go into too much about whether or not it's ever too hot to fuck. Yeah, um, it never is. Go ahead. <laughs> so you're on team Sweet Dick Willie for this one. I'm team. Yeah, I'm team SWB. Uh, SWD, absolutely. Uh, never too cold, never too hot. If if you're in the mood for it. The icy man shows up. Kids are getting icies. And then the ice cream truck comes around the corner and a kid runs out into the middle of the street. Ice cream! Runs right in front of a speeding car. This apparently happened to Spike Lee when he was a kid. Now, I don't know if someone threw him out of the way or exactly what the circumstances are, but this is from his childhood. And the mayor comes out of nowhere, tackles Eddie, who we had met before, takes him and, and saves his life. And by the way, the editor was cutting this scene while they're still shooting. And he's like, this isn't working. He went to set, said, Spike, the scene where DeMare saves the kid is not working. And Spike said to the editor, well, take the camera, set it up, set up the shot you want, get what you need. And so the editor took over to get one shot, got that shot. I don't know what the shot is. And then that, but that clicked to made the scene work. Wow. Wow. Right? Doctor, don't you know no better than to run out in that street in front of a cop? And then out comes mom. What's wrong? Mayor knocked me down. Well, you ought to be shaming yourself. I think the mayor's response to this is a textbook of de-escalation. Because he just, his adrenaline's got to be going at this moment. He just saves a kid's life. And this woman just said, you ought to be ashamed of yourself. And he does not respond negatively in any way. (laughs) That boy's just scared to death. And he tells her what happened. And then she turns on the kid and starts spanking the kid. And when your father come home, he got way you little man behind out too. And the mayor says, "Miss." Again, he's very polite. Miss, you didn't have to hit your boy like that. He's already scared to death. And now she turns on the man that she now knows saved her son's life. I appreciate you helping my Eddie. I truly do. But I'll have nobody question how I raise him, not even his daddy. Mm, not even his daddy. <laughs> so what do you so so the, Let's talk about this moment first before we talk about what the mayor, how he responds. In black neighborhoods, I don't know how it is in Hispanic or white neighborhoods, but (laughs) anybody can spank you. Any adult can spank you. The mailman, any parent, (laughs) something. Yeah, seriously. Anybody could spank. If you do wrong and it's caught, you can get beat. Oh, yeah. And and I think that him 
questioning her spanking her son. It's two things. Questioning the way that culturally he should know is how they do it. B, you know, women, especially at this time, were especially black women. Sub sub tier, second tier citizens. That's the only thing that they really could control as far as in response to another person. So that's maybe him taking away her power as a parent, as a, as an authority figure, and she did not appreciate it. And I thought she was out of line, basically for sure. But what you said about the way he reacted, king, king, yeah. de escalation. Yeah, because he says he could say, "What I just saved your kid's life." He could say that. And I think most people would say that. And yet what he says is, you're right, man. You're right. Well, because he's from that community. He understands. Uh, and remember, he has that interaction with the young kids. What he tells them, what do you know about me? What do you know what it's like when it's standing yep. in the doorway watching my kids? So he knows what it's like to respect um, a black woman raising her children and how to address that situation. And she is not someone to be messed with. You know, she initially is, as you mentioned, against the mayor. Then Eddie clears it up when Eddie won't answer him and tell him what really happened. She spanks him and sends him upstairs. So she's thanking the mayor, but then immediately turns on the mayor. The mayor tries to tell him what to do. And even the other people around are reacting to her spanking Eddie, right? It isn't just the mayor. The mayor doesn't react. Oh, yeah. Everybody else reacts like, oh, my God, stop. Don't blah, blah, blah. I think bugging out's even there. And it's like kind of like, don't. Uh, and Eddie Eddie runs in and she's like, no, I'm not having it. And it's because, you know, and, and, and Andre, I can't speak to this. You might be able to speak this better, but black mothers, they know they have to protect their kids and they protect them hard because it's a hard world that is biased against black young men, uh, really against black people, black young men, especially. So you got to teach them the right way to do things and be honest and be truthful and whatever, because they could be in a bad situation at any moment. And you kind of rely on those wits and that strength in order to get out of it. So I think there's an overwhelming desire to make sure that you were raising your kid exactly right because you're afraid of what could happen. And so many black women recently have spoke, mothers have spoken about how they fear their children being killed at any moment or getting in a situation because they uh, get in, you know, because of how unfair the world can be. So, yeah. My mom would always tell me, they were both my parents, but yeah. they were very um, intentional with how mm-hmm. we were to deal with situations. And sometimes the discipline, not just on, all of us, but maybe me because I'm the oldest and I was the first yeah. run. Uh, it was severe, not severe in the sense of it was um, uh, unnecessary because I think it yeah. was, but there is definitely a risk where you have to be more aware of how you react and how you are in situations because your slip could be the ultimate slip that costs you everything, whereas some people have more leeway. Right or wrong, that just is, you know, some people have more leeway and you cannot afford the leeway. So their their punishment of me, towards me, or their discipline, I should say, towards me was, and that's where they say it's out of love. This is to make sure you never forget, because if you forget, you can fall. And if you fall, you may not get up. Yep. So uh, I, you're, I'm with you on that one, John. So we've delayed this conversation a little bit. But now we're going to cut back to Sal's. Sal's sitting with Jade in the yeah. booth, and he says, Excuse me, uh, I, I don't want to sound like a jerk, but can I say something to you, Jade? Yes, Sal. you got the biggest eyes I've ever seen in my life. They, like, jump right out of your head. You know that? I feel embarrassed even saying that. I feel like a jerk. Uh, 
it's the embarrassed to say it like a jerk that actually does push it over to it is it's on the edge of creepy for me definitely okay it was for me too and and the only reason that it was is because when he says that line spike cuts back to him looking at her that was not necessary in a platonic relationship if i recall there is a there is a cut back to him looking at her that i was like hmm. like the way that he's looking at her it just made me feel like what's going on here it just i felt a little unsettled and it but but the brilliance in it is that he doesn't take it all the way one way or the other he yeah. really does leave leave it uh, ambiguous in, in that sense it's not defined one way or the other well because the scene doesn't go on Right, because Mookie comes in and takes her out almost immediately. So we don't. But Jade, in no way, is unsettled by the comment. No, in no way, no. Um, that we see. Right, I don't know. Uh, maybe a, another uh, a, a female uh, conversation in this conversation would say, "Oh, well, that's women are trained to do that because you know men are always constantly making these comments and hitting on them, no matter what age they are, and you just have to roll with it." So maybe that's true, but her which we get to in the next scene her is she's really being really defiant with mookie and saying mookie you're being ridiculous uh so if you buy into the fact that something was happening here then you're saying mookie was right and i don't think mookie was right i don't think mook's right about most things in this movie <laughs> but i certainly don't think he's right here well he, he, here's what i would say i i i slightly disagree with because what i what i actually think is it's up to her what, how to interpret this moment. It's exactly. not up to us. It's like if she's exactly. cool with the moment, then Mookie should be cool with the moment. Right. But, it, but, but I also think in terms of filmmaking, this moment about, of doubt about Sal is critical to the movie. Yes. And it's critical to choices Mookie makes later in the film. Because Sal has been, you know, a, mostly really, really, warm fuzzy character you know he 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 says how he loves you know the people love him they grew up on his pizzas he shuts down pino a little bit he you know yes he yells when radio raheem comes in but that's kind of understandable but this moment you go like wait is sal is there something i need to worry about with sal Hmm. and mookie certainly is worried about it he grabs jade takes her outside read my lips don't come in sal's no more what are you so worked up about the way sal looks at you about the way he talks at you he's just being nice look all sal wants to do is hide the salami yeah see that's where it goes to that's where i think he's like come on man i agree and it's a it's such a because she says you're you're crude and i think that is such a crude way like he's not saying I'm uncomfortable with the, you know, he doesn't have any subtlety about how he talks to his sister about this. <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. Right. No, he doesn't. And, and what I like is that she, rather than engaging in that conversation goes, I'm a grown woman. You can hardly pay your rent. And you're going to tell me what to do. Be a man. Yeah. Where do you get off telling me what I can do and can't do? when You can't even pay your goddamn rent. That's important to look at. Cause I'm a grown woman is the subtext is even if so, I can do whatever I want. I'm not right. a child. Yeah. Right. Right. I want to hook up so, with Sal. That's my business, not yours. That's right. We can't blow past that because she's saying I'm an adult, and I'm so much an adult. I'm taking care of you. You're not. Exactly. You don't have to get to try and take care of me here because I'm the one taking care of you. When are you going to get a job? When Mookie is 17 and she's 14 or something, he might have some big brother cred. Right. But when they're in their 20s and she's paying the rent, mm. there's not a lot of big brother cred left, <laughs> in my opinion. And then, again, he says this thing, I always get paid. I'm getting paid. Peanuts. 
You know, in a while, I'll be making a move, all right? Yeah. When? Don't worry about it. Oh, yeah, of course. Does Mookie even have a move in his head? I don't think so. I think he has aspirations, but I don't think he has a plan. Oh, that's fair. Yeah, I don't think he has a plan. I can agree with that. And again, I go to this continuum of bugging out in that gang of friends who may or may not have jobs and Radio Rahim, and then the corner men who sit on that corner a lot, and then the mayor. And and in the corner men, they said, you know, when I, I'm going to own a store or I'm going to, you know, or own a boat. And they're like, when are you going to do that? And here's Mookie saying, I'm going to make a move soon. And it ends with her saying, I'm tired of supporting a grown man, okay? I want to know when you're going to pack your bags and go, okay, Mookie? And he doesn't respond to that. He takes it back to his conversation. Hey, just don't come in Sal tomorrow, right? Mookie walks in, goes right up to Sal, and says, I don't care if you fire me this exact fucking moment. If you're saying what I'm thinking you're saying, you better not say it because I don't want to hear it. (laughs) Sal knows what he's being accused of or what Mookie suspects him of. Yeah, I think Um, men would know. You know, by yeah. the illusion, do you know what I'm saying? The way yeah. he's using, the way he's prefacing mm-hmm. what he's about to say. You know, Mookie, not for nothing. But if you were just a little bit taller, I'd kick you right in the ass for what you're thinking. As a matter of fact, I should kick your ass on principle alone. I don't disagree. If I was Sal and someone came in, my employee, and accused me of that, yeah, or that would I would be a really upsetting thing, mm-hmm. you know. But really, accused him of what? Because like John said, he yeah. he's yeah. an adult and she's an adult. That's yeah. true. So I, I wonder what the, I mean, maybe the accusation of that you just want to bang her. Like she, you're just seeing her as a piece of meat. Although he's the one that uses salami. The the first he's one. The one you know, he's the one who hasn't seen his kid in a week, but yeah. he's got the judge. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> right. Uh, and he sends Mookie off on a delivery where we have another thing about maybe you made a mistake. Are you sure it's the right address? Which is interesting because the address is actually uh, Tina. Yeah. That's where this pizza is going. I have been struggling mm. to figure out the, I think the Mookie Sal relationship is so central to the film mm-hmm. and it is so difficult to understand like what's really going on. And, and I've thought about, and there's even like a whole personal story about my dad and this young man that he helped out that I was going to, I was debating whether or not to tell, and I'm not going to tell it because it's too much of a digression. But like, I think how Sal feels about Mookie and how Mookie feels about Sal is right at the middle of this movie. And there's a level of ambiguity to it that is very, very hard to get your head around. I think that's my feeling. Can, uh, why why are you bringing it up at this point in the movie? Do you feel like this back and forth between them and the fact that he doesn't fire him and the fact that he sends him on this delivery, do you think he kind of lets him off the hook a little bit? Is that what you think? It's funny you say that because I realized I was talking, my note was to bring this up at a later scene. <laughs> so it's funny that you say that because, yes, I, I actually meant to bring it up when he says you can always have a job here. You're part of this business. Right. Because, but, but I would say, what I would say is this scene, I should kick your ass for what you're thinking, which has come off of an entire movie of him saying, I don't trust you. You're not a good employee. Contrasted with that upcoming scene of you're always going to have a place here at Sal's. Yeah. That is the ambiguity of this relationship. You know, I think he sees him as one of his sons. Yeah. I don't exactly. Right. Andre, please take it. Yeah. What do you, what do you think? No, John, you're you're on the money. I, I think not only does he see him as one of his sons, I think that is the reason why his other son is so angry. Because mm. he sees this black kid 
as one of them and and it drives him crazy and you know the point that you're making is i you know i was thinking about it for later as much later as you know we we see how much he loves mookie how much slack and leeway how much he gives to him and how yeah. much he allows yeah. it, how much rope he gives him so uh, you know what i think this is as a device as a writer is he's setting up the audience to justify how you know it, it, it he justifies his relationship with him throughout the movie as we see it progress yeah. and that, that 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 he is essentially one of the sons yeah you know what i think you you're absolutely on the money andre yep. i i think yeah, that yeah, we never ahead. see his parents, Steve. We never see his parents. There's not even an allusion to, I don't, from what I understand, to what happened to his parents. So God knows how long he has known Jade and uh, Mookie. And so maybe he sees that Mookie is a guy who started, and maybe even because he respects Jade and, lo- and loves Jade as a person so much that he took in Mookie as a job and doesn't want to fire him because, you know, he helps Jade with the rent or whatever as much as he can. And he deals with the bullshit with Mookie because he's seen him grow up and maybe he knows what happened to his parents. And so, and then has a connection there. And so maybe there's a lot involved here, possibly behind the scenes, but certainly it's not in the movie. Mr. Mayor. I saw what you did. That was a foolish act, but it was brave. That child owes you his life. I, I love, I'm just going to say it again. I love this relationship. And, and I love the way he, it's like the mayor grows in stature at this moment. Mm-hmm. It's like she handed him a humanity that he had been missing yeah. by seeing him this way. Her approval means so much to him. To him. Yeah. Well, I wasn't trying to be a hero. I just seen what was happening and I reacted. Didn't even think. <laughs> Probably wouldn't have done it on second thought if I had thought. Yeah, the mayor getting to be an old man. I ain't run like that in years. And they tell us this whole story about playing baseball. And it's just a great monologue. And I don't know, but I wonder if Ozzie Davis wrote that one too. But I'll tell you this. This is one of my favorite scenes in terms of the cinematography and the colors mm. here. And mm-hmm. the, where he places the camera. You know, because this is a guy that we haven't seen from the bottom up, which is a natural way of respecting your character. Show the bigger than they actually are. So him telling that story about the baseball, and like he's alive. And he, we, it's almost like he's, it's almost like he's de-aging in front of our eyes as he tells yeah. this story and having that mm-hmm. one lamplight, you know, mm-hmm. uh, with the blue sky, blue night sky behind him and the outlines of the building, the one lamp is just brilliant, brilliant. And remember, this is his second movie and that scene. I've seen accomplished filmmakers not be able to create a, a, a panel like this on screen. And it's just so perfect. And of course she's lit in that blue darkness as well, which helps as, as a counter position. But like that shot of him where he is brightly in front of you in the light, but you see that one lamp go on and it goes on as he's speaking. So we're seeing the, obviously as you see, said, Steve, we're transitioning in the night. So obviously the lamps come on automatically, but it was just so brilliant to have that lamp come on in the middle and right as he, because it's almost like you're saying he's lighting up himself. Yes. He's telling the story, right, uh, Dre? So no, I was just exclaiming, yes, because I agree with you, John. <laughs> <laughs> I just got in. I was just listening, getting into it. Like, yes, preacher, brother. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting that you say that because Ernst Dickerson and uh, Spike Lee talked about that light. 
oh. and how hard it was to get it to work and to get the lighting of the city to be dark enough to that light to come up. And they spent a lot of time making it happen. So I'm really glad you brought it up. Delivery from Sal's famous pizzeria. What the hell took you so long? Is it hot? Lady, I've never delivered a cold piece in my life. And suddenly we realize that it is Tina who has ordered this pizza. I, I I can't really go through this scene moment by moment because it's it's kind of hard to pull apart. But their relationship feels so real to me because I mean we they're connecting. She hasn't seen him in a long time, and then it becomes you know sexual, and they're talking about the kidney. You know, you see the the angry mom in the kitchen holding the, his his child, Hector. Um, Poor Hector, man. Yeah, yeah. There's so much here that you get a window into their relationship, but it's one of those, you know, it's it's what Spike does. Spike so brilliantly paces this film out with with uh, with everybody involved on the editing team as well. Do you take this is a little bit of a break, and the ice coming out to kind of calm down the heat. All of that here is to kind of give you just a little bit of last respite before stuff starts to really ramp up here <laughs> leading to the ending. Uh, yeah, I totally agree. And there's so many, first of all, this is where, obviously, I think this is where we all discover Rosie Perez. And she is unlike anything that had ever been on screen. She just seems to be who she is. Mom, come on, move out. Hold up, wait a minute. First of all, it is too hot, all right? And if you think I'm going to let you get some... Put your clothes on and leave here, and I'll see you a black ass for another week. You must be bugging. i see you tomorrow. Yeah, right. And my name is Boo Boo the Fool. And I love that they can be romantic in a weird way, attracted to each other, and bickering, and making fun of each other, and laughing at each other. All, all is happening at the same time. Trust me. Trust you, uh, Mookie. The last time I trusted you, we ended up with a son. Remember your son? I do remember my son. His name is Hector. You know, what are you trying to say? I'm a bad father? Honest man. And then I love the shot, and this is just a great director, of Spike on the bed, and all we see is her legs, is so sexy and so different from anything I have ever seen in a film, you know? Um, And then the moment that you mentioned, John, where he goes out to get the ice, and there is the mom, and she says terrible things about him, and he is not nice to her. English, English, I want my son to speak English, all right? Dude, you're not there. This is, you know, like, you don't have a right to say that if you're not there. This shit is cold. Supposedly cold, ice cream. Might have for you, so I'm going to say two separate things about this scene where he has the ice and he's putting it on her different parts of her body. Uh, the one thing is, I think it's, it's a beautiful scene and it's erotic and it's interesting and it's unique and it feels totally real to me. Mm-hmm. And apparently Rosie Perez was crying about it. And, and, it, and it's interesting because uh, in the, in the description, Ernst Dickerson and Spike Lee talk about, how respectful they were of Rosie and how they had a minimum people on the set and that they wanted to make sure she was comfortable. And Rosie says that she didn't want to do it. She felt very uncomfortable on the set. Mm. She felt somewhat forced into it and she was crying when they showed her breasts. Wow. Now she wasn't, she still loves the movie and I don't think it doesn't sound like she was angry at spike, but it also sounds like she wasn't happy with the way it went down, you know? (laughs) Do you guys think that scene, if she felt that way, could be done today? If she felt that way? No. Absolutely yeah. not. Yeah. Not ahead of because, time. Yeah. yeah. Gone are the days where 
the actress is uncomfortable and they just do it anyway because they don't want to get, get the lash back or the fear of losing a job, which, you know, like you said, she didn't feel forced into it and she wasn't upset about it, but she was uncomfortable. I think it just says, it says something about our industry where at least we've made progress to the point where, you know, actresses don't have to go into that situation if they don't want to. Yeah. And, and yeah. hopefully directors are listening from that time too to give credibility like hey we thought we did everything that we're supposed to do but right. clearly we should have factored in that this is a new actress who hadn't been pursuing necessarily acting that aggressively uh spike was dating her at the time so there's a lot of a mixture of things here that should have been considered before she didn't hopefully you know if you create the space for the for the to hear the argument to hear the complaint to hear the more you also create the space that hopefully these people learn. So for the next time, you know, and you hope that's what's going on now. Yeah. It's a tough spot. I, my first, it's a second film. My first film, there was a love scene in, and I was terrified because I wanted to make sure I wasn't disrespectful. I wanted to make sure that the actress was comfortable, you know, did the, the minimal, uh, minimal people on set. It, it's, it's a tough, you're, you're yeah. just, it's almost like, you you don't even want you can't even really do the scene as it's written because you're just so afraid to disrespect the actress. Ended up the two people in that scene got married and now they have kids from that movie, <laughs> <laughs> which is crazy. But uh, it doesn't always work out like that. I've had to direct two sort of scenes like that. I am so much more comfortable directing violence. <laughs> violence is is fun to direct. <laughs> Yeah. This is difficult, <laughs> um, yeah. but and but you know, despite what we might say about how it was done, the thank God for the lips. Thank God for the neck. Thank God for kneecaps. The whole way that's all done is just beautiful, and just as beautiful, I think, is when he's leaving this shot of just their lips in the foreground that's mm. backlit as they're talking. It's just beautiful, beautiful, interesting, sexy, real, funny. And the and by the way, the one of their lips, that's also that's just I think Ernest Dickerson saw the shot and said, Hey, let's do this. And they just that's just improvised. That wow. wasn't planned. Yeah. Great. It's great. Back at Sal's, the cops are getting a slice and ask. So just out of curiosity, how long are you gonna stick around? You mean tonight? I mean the neighborhood, you know. At this moment, I feel dread in the pit of my stomach that's so strong and so painful. And I, I really did stop this movie multiple times because I just didn't want to get there. Well, I figure about 50 years. And then we get a Trump joke. Mr. Trump's. Trump's pizza. I heard that place, man. No, it's Trump's Plaza. Do me a favor. Get out of here, Man. Yeah. It's weird. It's, it's <laughs> real weird hearing what we thought of these jokes, you know, in, in yeah. 1989. Who knew? And Mookie comes in, and he comes in with an excuse. Sal, if you want me to deliver any faster, you got to give me a jet rocket or something, because I can't be running with pieces. The cheese ends up on one side. And Sal, I love Sal this. Mookie, I didn't say nothing. <laughs> you must have a guilty conscience. You got a guilty conscience? Which is, of course, true. This interaction between Sal and Mookie, I think, is the last pleasant interaction they have before mm. he has that thing where he's like, anytime you want to stay, the night is, the night has come. Right. All the yeah. heat from the day is dissipating. It's cooler. And so you're seeing that. And he he had that interaction with the cops. But Sal seems happier. Sal seems more lighter. And he makes the joke, you know, where are we going? That kind of joke about um, 
with with Mookie. So it's a dad joke. It's certainly yeah, out of yeah, yeah. But you're seeing that that that's what you were asking about earlier, Steve. That's a father son moment. You know where he's yeah. trying to make the dad joke uh, uh, to mess with his son. And I, and I and it's a shame because of what what's about to happen, you know. And, and but it's brilliantly put here because Spike knows what he's leading the movie to, and he wants you to care about these characters yeah. so that when this shit blows up, you are really affected by it deeply. You know what's so great about that point is that that motivates what happens next because Pino yes. watching the connection yes. between Sal and Mookie hmm. grabs Vito and pulls him into the back room. Vito, black, white, no. No, 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 no. And I have to say, this is my least favorite scene in the film. I just, it just doesn't work for me. It's all in one shot. Really? Yeah, it doesn't, I don't know. It it feels, it feels like it's kind of improvised in a way that doesn't, I get it. I get what we're trying to do, but I don't, I don't love this scene. Do you feel it's out of place? Or do you feel feel it's not not contributing? I I, I feel this, I, I, I don't feel the Pinot... Vito Mookie triangle mm-hmm. is is working as well as and that's what the scene is about okay. and, and and it's also positioning wanting to position Vito against Mookie to support Sal to separate Sal from Mookie. I understand why the scene's there it just doesn't work for me that much the thing that I like about what we do get from that scene I under, yeah I get it it's one shot in a in a close room yeah. The the thing I took away from it was uh, they will stab you in the back. The first time you turn your back, boom! Ah! A spear right here, man, in the back. I do question why it was a one shot, and I was wondering why there wasn't more of a progression on a stance from both the brothers. Mm-hmm. No, it, it seems like uh, it, we know who, we know who's racist, and we know who's questioning it here. But the the stance of each character doesn't progress further. It's just yeah. It's they, they both stay in the same spot, with the exception of the question of you really think that or, you know. So yeah. I, I I see what you're saying, Steve. You just put your finger on exactly what's why it's not working. Is that I don't know where it goes. It's like if the scene ended with Vito saying you're wrong, we can trust Mookie, and Pino saying he'll stab you in the back. Then it would I would get it, you know, but but it's kind of there, but it's a little soft, I guess, is exactly where it's going to doesn't quite get there for me. I will disagree with both of you because I think the scene is essential in the movie because he's finally getting to confront his brother about the situation. And they're both sweaty and it's hot Mm -hmm. in that back room. And let me tell you something, as an older brother, I've (laughs) had these physical battles with my own brother which is something that we have never been able to put behind us uh it's one of the reasons we don't speak when we haven't spoken in 25 years uh, really consistently and when you're young you don't understand that those moments because you're you feel like you're losing control and you're losing respect and you don't understand that this is the natural course of things just as you wanted to break away from your father your younger brother wants to break away from you to establish himself and that's what uh, Bino is doing here is he's breaking away from his brother Vito because he's establishing a stronger relationship with Mookie, which once again shows Vito how much he doesn't have control of his life. He doesn't, you know, he's working in a place where he gets made fun of by his friends. It's not his own place. His father won't leave the place, won't sell the place. He won't listen to him. He gets mad at him when he goes out there to confront the customers, the black customers. 
And then his own brother won't respect him and is taking advice from a black man on how to deal with him. And so we are seeing that this is building towards it. It also serves a purpose to lay the groundwork for what we're going to see when everything pops off. And Pino sees Mookie throw the trash can through the window. Oh, yeah. And exactly what Vito said was going to happen, you could argue, happens. Oh, yeah. He turned his back on him or he let him stay there and he takes that trash can and he throws it through the window. Mookie joins in the assault of the job where he was working that has allowed him to, to, to go and take two hour deliveries, which should take 10 minutes. He's allowed this to happen. And so in a way, you're struggling with, well, who's right, who's wrong, which is what's so great about the movie. You have to decide for yourself which side you're on. And so to me, I think the the scene is essential to show you once again where they stand, but also how the tensions are ratcheting up here as we lead to this finale. I can't argue with a thing that you said. I think that is all <laughs> spot on the money. And, and totally. I, if it doesn't work for you, it doesn't work for you. I'm not well, trying to. I don't love the scene, but I love everything you said. Everything you say is exactly why it's supposed to be in the movie. I just, maybe it's the writing or the way it's shot or how they did it that I don't love, but, but you're, you're a hundred percent right. Um, once again, yeah. we're back with Fight the Power, and now these iconic figures of the neighborhood who have all been separate are going to come together. And the first two to come together is Buggin' Out and Radio Rahim. Radio! Buggin', what's up? And now Buggin' Out brings up Sha- Sal's. He says, check this out. You know Sal? Yeah, I know that motherfucker. I've been trying to organize a boycott of Sal's famous, you know what I'm saying? I almost had to bust him in the head today, man. Gonna tell me... Tell me, Radio Raheem, to turn down my box and shit, man, and didn't even say please. What I wonder, by the way, if Sal had said please, would it have made a difference? <laughs> I don't know. I can't answer that one. I don't know. <laughs> we know that he did turn down the music eventually anyway yeah. to get the slice, right. but I don't know if it would have made a difference if Sal said please. Well, yeah. would it have made a difference uh, in charging him for the extra cheese if he had said please? I don't know. It's uh, John, extra cheese is $2. $2. <laughs> <laughs> Unless um, you're uh, the girl. <laughs> and so it's free. And now, and so now bugging out who got no support anywhere in the neighborhood has found his first ally mm-hmm. is Rady Rahim is down with boycotting Sal's. And then our third sort of iconic character of the neighborhood comes by and that is smiley. And the thing is because of his interaction with Pino smiley is angry about Sal's. And then there's this moment where they come together, which is someone from one of the buildings yells down. Cut off that and in this amazing high angle shot, looking down at the three of them, Radio Ra- Rahim says, God Yo, I'll me. fuck you up quick, two times. And then Smiley joins in. Three to times. I think this is his homage to West Side Story. That shot is exactly the shot oh. from the end of Cool. Yeah, musical number when they come out of the garage, which is also sweaty, also at night, also yeah. leading to a confrontation. And the angle that he uses, and it's a New York film as well. I think the angle that he uses yeah. is, is a little bit of an homage uh, to what Robert Wise did, or sorry, Jerome Robbins did in that movie. I think you're totally, and we know Spike loves musicals, so yes. it wouldn't surprise me at all. What I find so interesting about this is that Smiley wasn't in the original script. <laughs> Look how he's, <laughs> you know. Is, is that he just gets created and then I think he is so essential to the power of this moment mm. of the three of them coming together rather than it just being the two of them coming together. 
we've reached the scene we were talking about before. We're back at Sal's. He's counting out the money. <laughs> of course, Mookie just wants to get paid. And Sal just is like bursting with warmth and oh. love at this moment. This is terrific. I mean, we had a great, great day. There's nothing like a family in business working together. It's so hard when somebody is so positive and does something that in their mind is so loving and is also totally misguided. I'm going to rename the place. I'm going to call it Sal and Sons Famous Pizzeria. Why not? You guys are going to take it over someday anyway, right? Mm. And I'm like, dude, you are not reading your kid <laughs> at all. <laughs> there is no way in hell Pino is taking over Sal's Famous. At least he didn't think so at this moment. Yeah. And then he turns to Mookie. This is what we talked about before. He says, Mookie, I want to tell you that there's always going to be a place for you here. Right here at Sal's. Sal's famous pizzeria. Because you've always been like a son to me. Yeah. Dagger yep. in, his, in his back. And, and, and here's, the, here's the thing. He, the way he shoots this, by the way, um, is very similar to how he shoots the end of Malcolm X. And by that, I mean when he's when we're hearing Ozzy Davis's speech about Malcolm. The slow pan across the faces to see the reactions same thing is happening here, right? We're seeing it's the last thing Pino wants to have happen, right? And then uh, Vito's reaction kind of kind of perplexed at looking at this, and then Mookie looks like that's the last thing he wants to be is working here yeah. down the road. And if they go home, this movie is nothing. Nothing else happens. Right, we're all good. And then you hear. Ugh. And I think you, you say like, you know, oh, no, this, if they had just gone home, if Sal wasn't in that mood, they would have gone home. Sal being in the happier mood, the more relaxed mood, maybe Jay being yeah. there, maybe them making them money, maybe the heat being so bad and then having the co cooler air come through at night. Maybe there's a whole different reaction. And yep. it's just this one moment when Mookie himself says, don't open the fucking door. It's this one <laughs> moment that leads to all this shit, man. I let them in. Let them in. They love my pizza. Yeah. Uh, and the crowd comes in, and, you know, Mookie wants to go home, and they're all having fun, and things seem really great. And then it's... It, it, the, this is where Spike's choice to repeat this song over and mm. over and over again pays off because when you hear fight the power coming from the distance yeah you the, the level of the oh shit is so big fight the power fight the power fight the power we got to fight the power that be and we go from this warm moment right into the dutch angles and the loud music and the yelling and we got bugging out yelling about the pictures of the wall we have sal telling to turn the music down and we have are you deaf and it's escalating yeah. and then man it's just <laughs> i don't know how to say this the right way you do a beautiful job of escalation of racism mm -hmm. from sal mm -hmm. because the first thing he says get that jungle music off we ain't enough we ain't gonna be my jungle music why are you going to be my Africa? Mm. That's poignant. That's definitely poignant. And he's been very direct in not being racist up until this point. Yeah. So he's also being very direct with pushing buttons. You know, he's, he's pushing buttons. And bugging out, you know, this is where you go. Yeah, bugging out. Now he should be upset. 
Right. Sal can put whatever pictures he wants on the wall, but calling it jungle music and we ain't in Africa, eh, not so cool. Yeah. But it's, um, it, it follows him saying, hey, you're like a son to me, to, to, to Mookie. Exactly. So Spike is like, he's not racist, clearly, because he's saying you're my son, but he's purposely saying racist things. Like, this is jungle music and, and you know, pushing the, the racial buttons. Yeah. Well, th- I mean, this is, you know, newsflash. Someone can like individual black people and still be a racist. And Andre, you in our last episode, that was one of the things that you, you know, talked about is like people conspiring with you with their racism towards other people. Apparently, this is what Spike Lee said, is that Danny Aiello said, I don't use the N word. I never use the N word. I don't want to use that word in this movie, like really fought against it. And Spike was like, you have to use this word. This is what the movie was. And it, and that Spike whispered to Giancarlo the line about, we're closing you, you guinea bastard. And when he said guinea bastard, yeah, out came that word from Danny Aiello. Now, I don't know exactly how those circumstances work, but man, when it comes out, it comes out. Uh, and he yells... And I'm just going to play the line. Mm-hmm. You got that right, you black cocksucker! I'll fucking tear your fucking nigger ass Everyone, the whole room is going crazy. It's, things have escalated this huge thing. And this is what, you know, the sound design is so good. And part of it was that scene, that warm, fuzzy scene a moment before was very quiet. Yeah. Very simple. And now it's very loud and very complicated. And he takes that baseball bat and destroys Radio Rahim's radio. And then we go back to silence. And the looks in the aftermath of that moment. Yeah. And Sal just breathing heavy. And I think that pause is critical to this movie. I just killed your fucking radio. And then Radio Rahim grabs Sal, drags him across the counter. Of course, this is a stuntman, and throws him on the ground and goes at him. Over a fucking radio, man. Over a radio. Um, but that he is radio Rahim. I mean, you know, I said that removing him, but see, but it's the same thing, isn't it? Rahim came into his shop to take a bat to his shop (laughs) in Mm -hmm. essence by saying, you need to change what you're doing to make me happy. (laughs) And you need to put black people on the walls to make me happy. That's him taking a bat to Sal's figurative shop. And so the fact that Sal pays him back, and look, I don't excuse the N-word at all. The fact that he even said it means he's always had it in reserve, and that's not a good thing. Um, but him unleashing on the radio is in a way kind of showing Raheem, and I'm not saying this does on purpose, but in a way it's showing what Raheem was doing to him essentially initially is what he's now doing back to Raheem, which is removing his identity. You're trying to change my shop out from under me to remove my identity of my shop. This is my shop. I'll do it as I wish. There's like, you'll walk around and play whatever song you want to play, whatever volume you want to play. Don't give a fuck if it affects other people. I get to do my shop. You get to have your radio, you know? And so it's, yeah. it's that kind of thing. And you see the, 
the exchange of that and, and Rahim loses it because in essence, he took away the essence who Radio Rahim is by destroying the thing that is literally his first name or nickname. Oh, I was just going to say, I've been in a situation where someone pops out the N-word mm. to elicit a reaction from me. Mm. And, and mm. John knows typically, yeah, you can say words don't bother me. It, it really is more a revelation as to where you're at as a, as a person, not to how I'm defined. Yeah. But I think it's great how Spike saves that card for 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 Sal at the end and the vitriol in which he spits it out. It's venomous. And the room oh, yeah. was almost like the room reacts. And I think that moment is the gasoline. Mm-hmm. Yes. To the fire. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And, the, and and this is it's funny. I, I randomly brought up this concept of the pseudopod is that and actually I'm really glad that I did because it's putting your identity into a thing. Yeah. Radio Rahim has placed his identity in that radio. Mm-hmm. Yes. And bugging out is placing this importance on getting some black pictures up on that wall. And they, it's all things outside themselves. And then when those, those things are damaged, they feel personally damaged. Mm-hmm. Um, by the way, uh, Roger Smith plays Smiley. Uh, he, uh, you know, he's into it. <laughs> and so, Radio Rahim drags the stuntman, Bill Nunn drags the stuntman, puts him on the ground, is on top of him. The crowd is all around. And Smiley, Roger Smith, starts spitting at the stuntman. Oh. And the stuntman was not happy and went went nuts on him. It sounds like, I mean, it sounds like, you know, attacked him and had to be dragged off of Roger Smith. Um, That ain't fucking cool, dog. At least clear it. (laughs) Yeah, well, of course. Yeah. You spit on a Apparently, you're taking your life in your own hands. I'll tell you that right now. And apparently, uh, uh, Martin Lawrence got hit in the eye really badly in the, in the middle of this tussle. So people are screaming. It's violent. It's um, Sal is trying to fight back. It's really scary. Yeah. Vito and Pino are trying to pull Radio Rahim off. Yeah. And the mayor comes up. People from the neighborhood start running up. Mm-hmm. The mayor's trying to break up the fight. And then you get to a shot where Radio Rahim is choking Sal. Yeah, It's not just hitting Sal. He is clearly at least in this moment, trying to kill Sal. I don't know that if he would kill Sal, but in this moment, he is choking Sal. And then the cops wait in. And they break up the crowd. They pull Pino off. They drag Radio Rahim away. They don't arrest or do anything with Vito and Pino, who are right in the middle of this fight, too. They are as much in the middle of the fight as bugging out. Mm-hmm. who they do immediately grab yeah you know i mean it's like yes and, and you know and and sal was punching uh radio rahim too yeah and we don't know what the cops seen but they don't do any trouble with sal yep and then rick aiello the big you know policeman puts radio rahim in a chokehold with his nightstick lifting him off the ground yeah and it's really weird watching this movie now 30 years later you know and the fact that it's uh, the Michael Brown stuff, the fact that it's still happening, the fact that I can't, George Floyd, I can't breathe. I mean, like, what the fuck? This is, you know, we're just talking about it now in 2022 in a more overt way, finally. But this is 1989. And this yeah. has been happening for centuries in this country. Uh, and that's 
the thing that's heartbreaking to to see. It doesn't mean that there isn't you know valid moments to arrest people and all this kind of stuff. But sure, that extra that force to kill because you're angry because you're just either you're racist or you're angry at black people or whatever in that moment, and you let your power, which you studied for a whopping six months to achieve, um, overwhelm the and and take the life of someone simply because you're angry that day fuck you and this is you chose to do the job you can't handle the fucking job get the fuck out of the job and so when i see stuff like this i really lose my fucking mind and and spike seeing it on film like this and then seeing the latino cop kick him in his fear that they've killed another person really infuriates me when i watch it now because we've seen that also uh, in the police force where people of color are so willing to turn on other people of color to defend their, their white compatriots when they commit acts like this, um, wearing the badge. And, it's, and you see him say, him screaming, that's enough, that's enough. Yes, he's but, telling us, he, Gary, stop, stop. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yep. Uh, uh, which, which often does happen, but then he takes it too far. And I just wanted to say, I, I feel like it goes back to what you said earlier, Steve, about the biggest guy in the room if you, all the names that you just mentioned, not only are they black, but they're huge, they're big, big men. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They went after the biggest guy and killed him. Yeah. Oh, great point, Dre. So they didn't go after the scr- the scrawny white boys. Yeah, they didn't choke uh, the, uh, no. Buggin out. Yeah, right. No, they didn't take Buggin out. They they went after the big guy. And I and I was just thinking as you named off all the un, all the murders, mm. all it, it's sad. They're all of set, all of stature, and I and I don't know if I mean, golly, is Spike Lee that brilliant as to where why Radio Rahim is the one who fits the physical mold to to the T of all the people who have been choked out, choked out still too. So it's just uh, it's it's mind blowing to as you said to see it, the feet dangling, the the shot of just That's the, the feet. shot. Man. That's the shot. That, that was that the shot one. is so upsetting. Yeah. Um, so it's it's funny. It, uh, coincidentally, the book that I'm listening to right now is called uh, My Grandmother's Hands. And it's by here. Let me look at his name. Uh, Resma Menachem. And he and it's a book about all the issues that we're talking about. And the th- thing that he repeats throughout this book is the fear of black bodies. Mm-hmm. Is that America is infected with this fear. And I think the thing is that they are afraid of Radio Rahim. Mm-hmm. And and because they see, and if it was a white guy at the same size, they wouldn't be as afraid because we have been enculturated. That's not a word. I just made that up. But we have been indoctrinated into this con- concept of that there's some differences that don't exist. And the violence in that moment, and the, and the thing, again, that I think Spike does so well is it's not that the cops are unified in kill Radio Rahim. They are not. You see the moments where the cops are going, dude, stop. You know, and then you see the moment, the, the realization that he is dead. And you see that realization happen with both the cops and the people in the neighborhood as that goes around. And the escape. I mean, first of all, the moment that you mentioned of kicking Radio Rahim yeah. and then the dragging him, thrown back of the car thrown bugging out in the car and the cop that just punches him for no reason while he's handcuffed in the back of a police car. And then the huge and even bigger cop who's like, you know, getting all the, getting the crowd to 
to pull back as they yeah. as they retreat. I mean, it's a, there's a lot of shit that goes on in this moment. And for anybody who might be listening to us, is like, well, if you didn't resist, it wouldn't have happened. It's absolute horseshit because I've seen plenty of videos of white dudes resisting. I've seen videos with white dudes riding off with a with a cop hanging out the side of their truck. Uh, and they're not shot or choked out or beaten or anything like the what you see happening consistently to black men and women in this country. And it's unfortunate. Uh, and it's got to stop. And um, even watching it now, it's still just as powerful and still resonates because, unfortunately, we're not past it. If anything, we're more aware of it that it's gotten worse. Uh, and there's a real fear. And I think what you're reading is absolutely right. For whatever reason, well, there are many reasons, uh, the white establishment fears black bodies. They fear black bodies. They fear they're inadequate. They fear that they're inadequate in comparison, that they're not as good enough, that they fear losing power. Uh, and it's so insane you know, to see that happening. And this is what seeps into the culture sometimes of people who are in charge of our communities and keeping our communities safe. And that's that anger that fear that racism that in, that infects them some of them not all some of them to commit acts like this uh and you see it happening very vividly here in in this uh, film i i i, I agree a hundred percent a thousand percent if such a thing were possible and i just want to mention go back to something you said the the he shouldn't have i'm so enraged by the he shouldn't have and it's like and oh, yeah, i right. think we have both been real critical of both bugging out and radio Rockin yeah. throughout yes. this film there's all sorts of things that i think he shouldn't have but the list of he shouldn't have been selling loose cigarettes he shouldn't have been overweight he shouldn't have been on drugs he shouldn't yeah. have resisted he shouldn't have talked back he shouldn't have been killed right none of those things are a death sentence yeah guy jogs and through some private property he shouldn't have been killed right that's it. And the size difference between the the he shouldn't have that are listed and being murdered, it just enrages me. And this is go this goes back to what my parents told me, because as as I, I hear you saying how enraging it is, but it's the truth. Yeah. If if my my parents said don't get to that point. Don't put yourself in that situation. It doesn't matter what's right or what's wrong. Yeah. And it's funny, my wife, you know, she said this. She, she said, should I be able to walk down the street at 1130 at night in a miniskirt and a bra if I wanted to? Yes. Will that potentially put me in a bad position? Yes. So let me not put myself in that situation, which is what we're trying to teach our kids. Life is not fair. You should be able to do things but if you do, the chances are, especially depending on how you look, it could be fatal. Yes. So, I, I, you know, it, it, it sucks. And I, and, and I started, my dad would not let me wear my pants below my waist. I had to have my, there were so many things I was so pissed off about. I'm like, why can't you just let me be like everyone around me? And he said, I'm not, because it could have a consequence later. And now, and now I see it. And it's, but all that to say is that even if, all yes. those things happen. Yeah. The law prote should protect the law should protect you. And your job as an officer is to subdue. There is no fear of death of, of these cops. And, and yet they took a life. 
So it's it's so sad that that it's sad that it is true. Is is a, a, I guess is is what I'm saying. It's sad that you have to be that aware, and it's unfortunate. And, and well, if you look even further, it's even if you even, how many cases are there? Of people were did everything right and still were shot. Didn't oh, have yeah. a gun. Were, were very docile, didn't resist, and they were still shot and killed. Yes, or choked yeah. out, or beaten up, and there are numerous cases of that. Yes. So the yes. he should have one thing or another, which Steve brought up so well, is irrelevant to the situation because they're going to do it anyway if they feel like it. Well, you remember there's that there's that one of the doctor whose pa- patient who's mentally unstable is in the middle of the road, and he yells out to the cops, "Hey, this is my patient. Yeah. We don't have any weapons here," and the cop shoots him in the leg. Yep, shoots the doctor. You know, like um, the it, it, I just want to go back to Andre to what you said, and because there's such an important thing to separate out, which is the difference between giving your kid good advice to protect themselves and what the other party is doing. So let's say it would be very foolish for me to take hundred dollar bills, have them hanging out of fifteen different pockets of my clothes, and walk through a rough part of town. That would be foolish on my part. Yeah. But if someone robs me, they're still a criminal. Yeah, right. My foolishness has nothing to do with their crime. Right. You know? Well, I, I disagree. Your foolishness did give them an opportunity to perpetrate the sure. crime on you. But, but I their think it's just a bigger crime. Yeah, it does not change their crime. And that is exactly that. What you're saying is right. Their crime is independent. Not well. Exactly. Their crime is not excused because the person makes a poor choice. What's wrong is wrong. What's right is right. Right? And, the, yeah. and, the, and that's what this movie... Shows and they clearly, clearly single out Radio Rahim, yeah. and it also makes me think about my own bias because every time I see Radio Rahim and every time I hear that song, I got when I first saw Radio Rahim, I was like, "Oh, is he going to punch this guy out with his love and hate? Like, are those going to be like brass knuckles to him?" It made me question myself, um, and I think that what we've said here is in 1989. It shows way before now, all the stuff that's happened now, how police brutality was a, a norm. <laughs> really, that's what Spike is saying. Like, hey, this is something we live with in 89. Yeah. And now we're still looking. Now we're getting a good microscope on it. Yeah. It's unbelievable, the foresight. What I also think is so great about the ending of Radio Rahim mm-hmm. disappearing in the car the body position of Radio Rahim with the fist over the heart, that's such a powerful moment and a protest. Um, and also the Korean grocer who he just insulted <clears throat> is the last person touching the car, the police car as it drives away. And I think that's important because even he understands that this is wrong and this can happen. Uh, and I think that's powerful too. And Smiley, of course, covering his ears. All of that in combination, I think, is just incredibly powerful. You know what else hurt me, John, when you talk about the body positioning? Yeah. I felt like he was just dumped into the car like a like a backpack. Right. Like Oh, God. Like yeah. he, he was just tossed in there. And the, the choice to have the angle not overhead, on the ground, yeah. of the, on the floor of the car, you're seeing. I mean, and so he's bringing the audience down to that. Hey, he's just dumped in like an afterthought. Yeah. I was like, this is brutal. I think the point that both of you bring up about um, Radio Rahim and how his body is treated is so 
important and one of the big things. And man, when again, when I was young, I didn't think about the fact. Where's the fucking ambulance? Mm. Why isn't anyone doing first aid? Oh, Why is there no CPR? And how many times have we heard this exact story where someone was shot and there is no first aid? There's no CPR, no attempt to save this life. Oh, the ambulances don't come for, t- I mean, Public Enemy did a whole song about that. 911 is a joke talking about how ambulances don't come into black neighborhoods or if they do they're 20 to 30 minutes late or an hour late um they don't uh, value black life the way they value white life or life in the middle class so and after the police leave there's just this silence that descends upon the neighborhood and the camera in what i would say is a very theatrical way tracks across the faces in the crowd they kill radio raheem's murder did it again, just like Michael Stewart. Murder. Eleanor Bumpers. Murder. Damn, man, it ain't safe in the whole fucking neighborhood. Never was. Never will be. How do you feel about this moment? It's it's painful to watch, especially it that the silence. It's it's like Spike giving a moment of silence. Yeah, and it's painful to watch because we just saw like a hit, basically. And uh, it's interesting watching it now versus when I was younger, because now we're in the middle of seeing these things happen around different communities in, in the U.S. And it it hit differently. It, it definitely yeah. struck a chord. And that silence, it made me think, did Spike foresee this? Did he think it wasn't going to get any better? Did, um, they... The the silence was almost like they were used to it, which is also disturbing. You only hear, you know, it, it was tough. It, it, it was a tough moment. Well, I love the, the, well, the panning here, uh, what you're seeing is all the different faces of these young black people, right? You're seeing male and female vo- uh, faces as it's going across. And as you said, the names that are being said, this is Spike's way of waking people up to what's happening. And Andre makes an excellent point. Like you said, it's a moment of silence. It's almost like their inner thoughts are coming out through their mouths and you're watching this and you're watching a community reacting to something happening right in front of their faces. Right. It's, it's when you read it about it, it, in an abstract, it can anger you when you actually see it happening, then it becomes real right? A really real in a visceral way. And you see that dawning on them as the camera is panning across their faces. Such a brilliant decision by Spike. And and as I said, uh, saying the names of the people who've been victims Mm -hmm. of this kind of police brutality is to hammer the point home for the people who are open to hear it, right? And that's who he's speaking to. Can you be open to hear what's happening? Because this is happening. And sadly, uh, as more and more of technology becomes available to us, as people are on their phones all the time, one of the benefits of that, um, and the the body cam is being able to see that this has been happening, and is still happening in large numbers, that are, or at least in numbers that are too disturbing for us to ignore anymore. For those who are open to actually seeing the truth of what's happening, so uh, it, it's a really powerful moment. It's so different for me now, Andres, you said too, that from me watching this in 1989 and me watching this in 2022, because, and I was thinking about it because like, I was a pretty well-educated young white kid in 1989 when I saw it. (laughs) And I really didn't understand. 
I saw it as like, here's a horrible tragedy. And yeah, there have been a few other horrible tragedies. And it's not like I was blind to the history of racism in this country. I was not. I was a relatively well-educated person. But I didn't understand that this is part of a continuum. You know what I mean? That this is mm. not isolated. That this is not uh, just a story or a thing that has happened a few times. It is a thing that is continually happening. Yeah, And that's what's different watching it today. And then the next thing that happens is so interesting because, again, Spike knows how to go from loud chaos to silence. And there's this moment where we see Sal and Pino and Vito and Mookie all standing together. And they are looking across at the neighborhood and who is looking at them. And Mookie moves away. You know, because the way he looks at Sal is with disbelief. And almost blame, right? I mean, in his mind, he looks at Sal, then he looks back at his at his community, and he walks towards his community away from Sal. And in a moment, in that moment, Mookie is deciding which way to go. I think there is a direct connection between Mookie stepping away from Sal mm. and bugging out, saying, "Stay black, Mook." Mm. He spent his time defending Sal. You do what you gotta do. Listen, listen, listen. Good people, please. Let's all go home. Somebody's gonna get hurt. Yeah, you If we don't stop this and stop it now, we're gonna do something we're gonna regret for the rest of our lives. And the mayor tries to stop everybody from hmm. because he knows, because the mayor has lived long enough to see this from the 1960s. He's seen this in how many decades? Not just the 60s, how many decades he saw this in, and he doesn't want anything to happen. But it's too late. I have seen two references to this, which I find shocking, to the mayor who I believe heroically mm -hmm. steps in front of this angry crowd mm -hmm. and tries to stop violence. I saw two references to people saying that they felt he was an Uncle Tom in this yeah. moment. And what were the references? What, are they, what was the gist of what they were saying? That he was siding with the white man, with the white establishment against the black community. Because he was trying not to allow it to escalate. Yeah. Yes. Well, this is the thing. It, it depends on how you frame what's happening. Is like, I believe that he's doing what you just said. He's trying to stop this from escalating. Another interpretation is he's trying to save Sal's famous. Hmm. Interesting. You know, I I didn't see it as trying to save Sal's. I saw it as him trying to protect the neighborhood. That's what I One of the things that always has been really painful for me to watch, and I think sometimes it's alluded to on, on the news, is when you see uh, black people burn down mm -hmm. their own community. Yep. And and I think the mayor, from what I saw, and it, that this is the genius again of Spike because he's he's written all this right. I saw the mayor. This is our. This is ours. Let's not risk any more lives. Let's not risk any more of our neighborhood. We already lost someone. Let's let's let cooler heads prevail. And as we see, you know, it it, it doesn't go that way. But it, it is. I think it's painful for him to because he know. Like John said, he knows what's going to happen. And he's the older guy. Yeah. Everybody who's yelling are the young people. Everybody who's yelling at Sal and even Mook, who's a younger person, he takes the trash can and throws it through the window. And by the way, 
the Korean grocer grabs his wife and runs away because mm. he too knows maybe <laughs> from his own country, what he's seen this kind of stuff lead to in his experiences. Maybe this is what he was fleeing by coming to America. Right. I don't know, but it's an interesting moment when he grabs his wife. It, it Spike just throws it in real quick, but it's a, it's a telling moment, you know, and it's the young people who are yelling and, you know, they yell at the mayor and be like, you're going to get hurt too. And, uh, and Sal, unfortunately, I think Sal's response is the wrong response saying you do what you got to do. That's, that's, I think that's the stupidest response ever. Yep. And it doesn't, it doesn't like calm things down. He could have easily said, my God, I'm so sorry. There's no way that should have happened. Uh, uh, you know, like sat down. I apologize to all of you. This is ridiculous. There's another option that was there, but Sal defiant to the end. And in the end, I think his defiance is what leads to the anger as, uh, as it, after uh, Mookie throws that trash can through the window. But I, yeah, I will stand firm in the fact that uh, he is trying to protect. He says, you guys might do something you're going to regret. And Andre brings up an excellent point. And a lot of black people have come forward. A lot of black activists come forward and say, don't burn down your own neighborhoods in riot and in protest. That makes no fucking sense because it's exactly what they want you to do. You, they want to paint you as animals. And when you act like this, now they have their ammunition to paint you this way and keep painting you this way. And there's another way to react to this. You know, the Rodney King verdict, I understood the anger, but watching them, you know, burn their own houses, burn their own businesses, burn, burn business community, loot, all of that. I don't know what that ever solves, to be honest with you. It doesn't mean I don't understand the anger. I 100% understand the anger, but I don't understand what looting solves other than expressing the anger or focusing the anger someplace and unleashing it, you know? And then like the mob, like a mob does, now it turns on and, and, and how a racist mob does. And I'll say this, and I'm not saying they're racist mob, but I'm saying we've talked about the how racism flows downhill in this movie after they're done burning sows, now they turn to the Korean grocer, led by the three dudes who've been sitting on their ass all day, to try to burn that down. Why? Why are you trying to destroy these things? It is because they reflect your own, in my opinion, the, your own feelings about how angry you are that you're not the one running these businesses. You're not the one being successful in this neighborhood. And maybe it's systemic because you haven't been allowed to be successful. And that's absolutely fair to understand that anger. But destroying other people's properties to express that anger, I'm never going to be in support of that, to be honest with you. I am with you. I don't think when you burn your own community down, who's going to build it back up? It's yeah. not going to be them. Where are you going to so, get that money to build it back up too? Yeah. It's exactly right. And the anger that you feel or, or anger that one, fe that one feels is the generalization that I've been here. I remember my one of my first uh, uh, state competitions and the judge said to me, be careful being an angry black man. And that was like really the first time I heard that. And I was like, wow, what is this? And then I, you know, talked to my teacher about it. said, that's a stereotype. I'm a young kid. Right. Wow. You know? And, and I think that looting and, and, and that just, just captures the generalization of just angry black people with no, capability of communicating or expressing themselves no matter how angry or how upset one may be if you can't control your emotions and people can control them then people can control you mm -hmm. great I, I so much to, i have so much to say and so little to say in a weird way um the first thing is and i kind of think i mentioned this earlier in the podcast at some point is just recently 
this fantastic podcast called Slow Burn that basically does a season on one large event. So mm-hmm. one was on Watergate and one was on various things. The last one was on Rodney King mm-hmm. and the L.A. riots. Oh, wow. And I highly recommend it. It's really, really good, really in-depth. And one of the things where it starts, actually, is tensions between Korean shop owners mm. and the African-American communities where their businesses are. And there's a murder, which I didn't know anything about, where a, a Korean woman shot a young black woman. And it's just th- this is deep, deep stuff. The, the second thing for me, vi- violence, rioting, destruction of private property is wrong. It's full stop. There's not a it's and it's because I totally agree with what you said, John. I completely understand the anger yeah. and I completely understand the anger at this moment. But it is wrong for all the reasons that both of you just stated. And it doesn't mean we vilify the people that do that stuff, at least in my mind. It's I understand why you're doing it. I but I'm also heartbroken that you're doing it because all you're doing is giving ammunition to a certain segment of people who believe a certain thing about your people, about any people of color. And as 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 uh, uh, John Tutorial's character says, you know, the second you turn you your back, they stab you. You know, you can't trust anybody ever. He's black and white together. No, no. You know, and there are people who just believe this. And when you see things like the what we're seeing here in the movie, it just reinforces it. And again, it does not mean the anger is illegitimate. There's a way right. to talk about this with more nuance and separate the actions out. And I, I think right. it's important to see here. The, the anger is legitimate. Yeah. The destruction, the, the violence. Yeah. I'm an MLK guy. The violence is right. wrong. Yeah. And that is just the setting for violence. Agreed. So let's talk about how this thing starts, because it is one of the most interesting things in the movie. And But I want to say, so Mookie is going to pick up a garbage can and throw it through Sal's window. Here's some interesting things that I saw about this. According to Spike Lee, every single white critic who interviewed him asked him about Mookie and the garbage can. Mm. Not one of them asked them about the death of Radio Rahim. Wow. In most of the uh, reviews from white critics, they talked about the violence of Mookie throwing this garbage can, but not about the death of Radio Rahim. Now, I think Mookie throwing this garbage can is a fascinating thing, and we need to discuss it. But And the the other thing, there is one article, and again, this is according to Spike Lee, that said that Mookie throwing the garbage can was one of the worst acts of violence he had ever seen on screen. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> ridiculous and i just i i just want to put you know i think we need to just highlight this yeah. in terms of evidence of how people are seeing what is happening and so we just all three of us just said the destruction of private property rioting this is wrong we are against it we all believe that but there is no comparison between the destruction of sal's famous and the destruction of Radio Rahim. Of course not. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, you know, not at all. Right. And and I think though, you know, and this is what has been changing, Steve. Yeah. And certainly something I've been vocal about sometimes to my not benefit, but the negative of benefit, because I've spoken out about the fact that we have an over an overly white critical establishment of movie critics and TV critics. And I do my best to break it by being that one of the people of color in this. Uh, conversation in this group of people because the, the sometimes the overall group think of an over uh, an overtly white society uh, uh, organization uh, makes people of color makes other sentiments feel out of place or not wanted and certainly back in 1989 i bet a lot of film critics 
didn't understand that this was happening in these communities and didn't want to see this was happening and weren't listening to Public Enemy, weren't listening to KRS-One, weren't listening to Ice-T, weren't listening to these people in the late 80s, early 90s were talking about what was happening in these communities. And the Rodney King verdict really exploded and showed you the anger that had been building for decades. And Steve, you mentioned the podcast. I would encourage people to watch OJ Made in America. That seven-episode documentary is phenomenal. I mean, phenomenal in teaching you about how these things occur in communities and that it's not something that just happened overnight or that day. It is built in for generations. And that's important to see here. And Radio Rahim's death is another example of police brutality. And I think a lot of these rich white film critics living in their high-end neighborhoods, um, because at the time you could make a lot of money being a film critic, didn't understand and didn't want to see that this was happening. So speaking out against the police, speaking out about this brutality, was not in their best interest in doing these reviews. Or the other side, they were just ignorant about it and didn't know and thought they could only focus on the violence and that this was a fantastical thing that rarely happened. And that was not true. Now that we've had this long disclaimer, <laughs> I have to ask this question. Why does Mookie throw this garbage can? I really liked how Spike set this up because no. he takes his time. Yeah. It's, it's, a, it's a deliberate. It's, everything we see after the garbage can seems to come out of rage. Yeah. And I think he is enraged, but he did it in a way where he said he looked at Sal, he looked at everybody, you know, he picked it up, walked over and threw it like saying, you know, in your face, like, you know what, Sal, I'm not, I'm not with this. And I thought that it was a protest. His first form of protest He's been asked to protest the pizza. He's been asked to protest the walls. Yeah. He's been asked to, pro- this is his first protest and he did it methodically. And, uh, and it was, I thought that it was a, a huge statement to Mookie's character and the, and the arc of his character and the, and where his character ends up at that moment saying, you know what? I am with my community mm. and Sal, you are not, you know, it's funny because Sal didn't kill him either. So I'm I'm trying to remember that Sal's not the one who choked uh choked him out. Yeah, yeah. Um, there was the police, the police are to blame for the murder. Yeah. But rightfully so, the, a lot of the anger is placed on Sal because of the m- moments leading up to it. So I think that the garbage can was a way of saying, Sal, I I don't choose you. This is I I I've always backed you up, but not this time. And I'm going to hit you where it hurts. Because you said a few scenes ago, this is his everything. This is, you know, you're part of the family. And he's saying, no, I'm not. At that moment. yeah, We'll see what happens later, but at that moment. No, I I agree with Andre. Because it's such a brilliant thing you bring up, Andre. Because sometimes, you know, you can watch movies. And especially when we do the show sometimes. And you just take things for granted because they're such great filmmakers, right? And pointing out how he takes his time is something that I've never considered yet i've always just kind of known right and him it's a slow build because he looks at sal for a long beat with the mouth open just in disbelief and who knows what he's saying to himself is he saying in that moment 
why did you, you know, why did you let me open the door? Why did you tell me to open the door? I fucking told you not to open the door. Mm. This all happened if you don't let me open the, if you don't tell me to open the door. I told you we were going home. Or why did you lose your mind and take a bat to that radio? Why did you use the N-word? I mean, there's a number of thoughts that could have been going through his mind in that moment that you can, you know, add your own idea. Or maybe just looking at Sal as a symbol and maybe for the first time, as you mentioned, Andre, in his mind, he is understanding why people protest, why they riot, why his community reacts the way it does. Because, you know, Mookie doesn't strike me as an activist in any way, shape or form (laughs) at all, you know, Um, and he's very much about himself and getting what he needs for himself. And so um, him looking at his community, and I think what's also great is Spike has the shot of Mookie looking out at the black men who are standing there. None of the black men he was looking at are black men we have seen mm. in the movie. Okay. Mm. They're not characters in the movie. They're just extras. But I think in a way he is showing the black community as a whole in that moment and him looking and seeing that there's a responsibility not to bug it out, not to Raheem, not to all these other people that he knows, to the black community as a whole, you know, um, mm-hmm. as a face. And I think that's when he walks towards them, walks through them, grabs the trash can and throws it through. The, is he the one that's supposed to do it? No, but how many times are riots logical? They're not. Or, or these angers, expressions of anger logical? They're not. And like Jose Canseco was the worst person to come forward about steroids in baseball <laughs> because of all the bullshit he pulled. But he's the one that pulled the curtain back once and for all on steroids and baseball. You're never going to have the or you rarely have the perfect messenger for these kinds of situations. So you may have an issue with Mookie throwing the trash can through the window. But the overall point is that this is a a black man, a young black man expressing his anger and finally understanding what his connection to his community should be. You know, so it's an interesting moment. Um, um, it can be twisted. I mean, it can be interpreted in many different ways. Uh, I agree with everything that's been said. I also think the cinephiles is continues to be the home of the greatest analogies ever. <laughs> this is the first Jose Canseco do the right thing analogy ever. Um, uh, I, I also I also want to point out that the way Spike does it is that he does it. I would say he moves very deliberately. Yes, that's how it's not fast. It's not like out of control. It is very deliberate. Uh, I, I have very little add, except what I think is so interesting about this film is that there are so many things that happen where the, the effect is not directly connected to the cause, mm-hmm. which is that as anger builds people lash out in directions that are not necessarily the right direction. Yeah. You know what I mean? Is that the, and and this is a moment it's like, yes, Sal did not kill radio Raheem, but Sal is in front of him of them right now. And that is, it becomes, and the anger is, and I think Mookie is angry. I think he's actually been angry for a long, long time. I think he's angry about the position he's in with Sal. I think he's got, and I think he's held all that down and all of that burst forward at this moment. Um, too much happens in this destruction of Sal's to, to, to go into all of it. But I want to point out just a couple of things. The first is who is the person that lights the match, which is smiley smiley. Yeah. Yeah. Cause there's a difference between breaking the windows and busting up the furniture and lighting the map. Yeah. And then 
maybe the most unexpected thing in this riot is mother sister yelling, burn it down. Burn it down! Burn it down! Well, let me ask you, can I ask you this? What did you think about the choice for of Smiley mm. lighting the match? I mean, I go back to what Steve said earlier. He wasn't even supposed to be in the movie. So yeah. <laughs> that's such an interesting decision. But, <clears throat> you know, remember, Smiley's been the one of everyone talking Malcolm and Martin Luther King, right? He's the one that's been walking around trying to sell those pictures and whatever. And he was part of the threesome. So as the last remaining member of the threesome, yeah, him is it's almost him lighting it is almost in a way uh, f- uh, finishing the deal uh, with Raheem and bugging out. He's the last one left. They didn't arrest him, and so he sets it on fire. And it's just an it's it, it, what's great about Spike it, throughout this whole sequence, as you said, Steve. Um, mother sister does something you don't expect. Mookie does something you don't expect. And now Smiley does something you don't expect. Yep. And I think that's uh, a brilliant uh, um, decision, multiple brilliant decisions by Spike to kind of throw the audience off because you never know who's going to be the one to do these things. And like riots, they're not controlled or logical or mapped out. <laughs> it's funny. I think both of these moments, Mother Sister yelling, Bernie down and Smiley light in the match are moments of extreme character contrast mm-hmm. because Smiley's been walking around with two symbols of the civil rights movement. Yeah. Two symbols of the civil rights movement coming together. And I think about how much, how many times in Smiley's life has he been mocked? Uh, yeah. Culminating with Pino yelling at him in front of Sal's. Yeah. And I think, again, once anger builds up to a certain point, you cannot control where it comes out. Wait, one more, one more quick thing is that the the two elder statesmen of the town, mm. mother, sister, and the mayor, have two Martin Luther King and Malcolm X opposing views on how to handle the situation. Mm. The mayor well, says, "Wait, wait, wait," yeah. and and mother, sister says, "Burn it down." And I don't think it's an accident that the mayor took one position and mother, sister had another, which goes back to what John was saying about them living and seeing. Mm. what has happened in the past. So it took me back to Steve's TV show of Mother, Sister, and the Mayor yeah. uh, and how they may have reacted in the past uh, with uh, certain events in history. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. Now, again, now I want to see them in this during the civil rights movement. Absolutely. And then the next moment, John, you mentioned this earlier yeah. is they turn to the Korean grocer. They yeah. turned and, and watching this movie the first time I was certain they were going to burn down that store the fact that it doesn't happen is kind of remarkable to me i I think he gives them a little bit of a respite by or or how can i say this he kind of doesn't make the audience turn on the riot do you know what i'm saying because i think if he if they attacked the korean grocer um i think that would have changed the audience's point of view in understanding the legitimacy of this anger. Uh, and it would have just been machine gun anger, which never really solves anything, as opposed to reactionary anger, which you can uh, analyze and understand. And if he had allowed them to go forward with destroying the Kringer, who did nothing, who'd never, you know, didn't choke anybody, didn't do anything, had himself been kind of uh, abused in a racial way by Radio Rahim, I think it would have... Uh, 
just turned us on that crowd and muddled the message. So I like that he left the threat out there to have the back and forth and have him desperately say, I'm like you, I'm you, I'm you in a, in a, an attempt to get them to understand I am a person of color as well. You know, I'm black. black. He says, I'm black. I'm black. I'm black. I'm black black like you. Um, and then uh, I had to point out Danny Aiello's performance with the realization of what they're doing. Get him out of there. Get, that's my place. That's my fucking place. And them having to, Pino and Vito having to pull him away. Yeah. Because he would have run right into the middle of it. His disbelief, his, the pain of that is amazing. And remember, um, it's uh, the mayor who push, who saves them. Yeah. It's yeah. the mayor who who pushes pulls them out and puts them behind a gate at one of the houses or whatever mm-hmm. one of the brownstones to try to save him because he knows what's coming next. And then the firemen show up. Yay! Okay, everything's going to be all right. Yeah, they're going to you know like we're going to calm down and uh the firemen the the people attacking the firemen and the firemen turning the hoses the hoses on the people of this community. It's just, it's just, it's just so painful to watch. And the mayor comes into frame and we realize that it is mother, sister screaming and he takes her away. That, um, I don't know why, but. Since I was a young, since I saw this the first time, that moment has always made me cry, just deeply cry because Ruby D, first of all, A, is an incredible actress. Um, yeah. And B, that cry, as you're watching the police come out, beat the people who are there, turn fire hoses on them just like they did the 1960s in the South. And we delude ourselves uh, that the North didn't have this kind of stuff when it did. Um Seeing that happen, the scream that Ruby D, who has lived through this, by the way, in real life, yeah, the scream that is coming through her, because her and um, Ozzy were activists uh, here in this country during the civil rights movement, the scream comes from generations of pain in the black community of this kind of treatment by uh, people in authority who are supposed to serve and protect and including firemen, because the firemen turn the hoses on these young black people. Yep. And she's seeing history repeat itself when she thought it was over, when she thought she had lived through this stuff and thought maybe, or had deluded herself that it was over. And I think all the memories come storming back in that moment as she cries um, and lets it out from deep, from a well of deep, deep pain. Again, another painful moment to watch. Uh, no, no accident that Spike introduces water here, and it's been fire the whole time, oh. uh, changing the elements. And um, I, I think if you played side by side historical footage, and then the, I think it'd be very close. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think it'd be very close. And and this goes back to what we were talking about with anger and and the response. The firemen, it doesn't matter if they're getting attacked. Hmm. You cannot turn your hose. It's not, they, they have to be better. You cannot turn your hoses on on your people yeah, yeah. or the people. 
no matter what. You can't do it, especially given that they're white and the and the and you're in a black neighborhood, and and there's still there's still fire. There's still stuff burning down, and instead of putting out the fire, they're turning all the water should be on the building, and they're taking out the the people. It's just it just shows a lack of regard, and it shows the truth of how you know it's so it's so it's hard being black especially in certain neighborhoods and when stuff goes down it's almost like they knew like hey we're not it's us versus them mm-hmm. as, as opposed to they're here to help us and that scream was like here we go again yeah we're we're back to where we started I, she watched it all unfold it, it, it was tough. When I was little first, I thought like, oh, it was Radio Rahim her son? Because it seemed so painful. But then as you get older and you reach it and you watch it, you're like, no, this is her soul. Is She's seeing her community break again. I'm just so fucking worked watching it. I just, I'm just, just wrecked. And then we hear Fight the Power again. And the camera moves back into Sal's and goes right to the burnt out boombox. <laughs> And, like, how can you be more symbolic? And then we see feet walk into Sal's, and you know that it's Smiley. Yeah. And I don't think, seeing it the first time, I knew what is about to happen, despite the fact that it is so inevitable. It is so perfect. As he walks up to the Wall of Fame, and he puts that picture that he's been showing throughout the entire film up on the Wall of Fame. And again, John, as you mentioned again, it's like, it's how could he not have been in the movie? Yeah. Because this is the perfect... It's been about we got to get some brothers on the wall, and he puts the picture on the wall. It's 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 an amazing moment. It's the aftermath. We hear music as we the camera moves along the wreck street. We hear uh, Senior Love Daddy. My people, my people. What can I say? Say what I can. I saw it, but I didn't believe it. I didn't believe it, what I saw. And then we push in on Mookie and Tina in the bed the next morning, and Mookie wakes up, and what's the first thing he says? Fuck! Money, shit! Where are you going? Get my money. Wow. <laughs> the fucking audacity, man, but, you know. Wow. Well, and what's interesting to me about this scene, too, is this scene isn't a... I'm in the aftermath of the most upsetting, dramatic, tragic event this scene between them is kind of like a scene they would have had any other day yeah you know what i mean yeah she doesn't want him to go he wants to go she you know scolds him for being irresponsible doesn't believe he's going to come back it's exactly the same kind of scene you know that says something spike is saying that this is uh there people are used to it mm-hmm. yeah because he's how i mean he slept yep i don't know if i could sleep if i was yeah in a situation like this i mean I'm very fortunate to have grown up at least from the age of nine. Uh, well, fortunate. How can I say this? I didn't grow up in, I mean, my father moved us out of the inner city when we were nine because he saw what was happening. And we did go to an all white neighborhood, which I, well, mostly white, which I experienced racism in a way that I hadn't experienced before living in a predominantly Latino area of Falls Church, Coolmore area, Virginia. And so, I haven't had to watch riots or haven't had to watch those kinds of things in real life, you know, and certainly those things were happening in, in certain moments in times in DC, but I was a kid at the time. 
the child. So if I was involved in a riot, I don't know, imagine I would sleep all night just from yeah. the PTSD of it all. So you bring up an excellent point that he's just sleeping and it's like another day. You know, well, even the fight, as you said, Steve, the fight he's having with Tina is a fight they've had probably yeah. how many mornings where she's like, I don't want to deal with this shit anymore. You don't leave me here with you. You're not going to come back for a week and blah, blah, blah. And so, like his friend just got killed. Yeah. And the yeah. city just burned. Like their town, their, their block just burned. And she's like, I don't know. But like you said, John, to the audacity of, oh, got to go get my money. Get right back. Money. And, and never mind, that's caused a bunch of property damage by throwing a trash can through the window. I got to get my money. Well, we're gonna we're gonna get to that because we got another scene coming. I should, one of the one thing I would say is like I'm sure both of you had this where you had some huge, massive, tragic something event in your life, mm-hmm. and the next day you got up and you had to do the dishes. You know what I mean? Like yeah. life goes on in a weird, and it feels weird. Like oh, I'm still doing the stuff because you got to do the stuff. Yeah. We cut to beautiful gold morning light, yeah. and the mayor wakes up. In a bed, and there is Mother Sister. Good morning. Is it a good morning? Yes, indeed. You almost got yourself killed last night. I've done that before. This whole scene makes me cry. I mean, it just like top to bottom. There's so much in it, there's so much history and subtext. Where did you sleep? I didn't. Mother Sister's got to be thinking about her screaming, burn it down, mm. and then watching what happened. Hope the block is still standing. We're still standing. Gets me right now. The movement of the camera here by Spike to pull, and Ernest Dickerson, to pull out of the apartment through the window, by the way. Yeah. Pretty incredible move. I mean, it reminded me very much of the reverse in Citizen Kane, where they take the oh, camera yeah. through the floodlight down to uh, Susan uh, Alexander, Susan, yeah. yeah, and so to see this one, but the shot, it's perfectly framed when she says, "We're still standing." And if you understand the context, right, she is speaking for the black community. We're still here. We survived yet again, and we will fight again. We are still standing. Our community are still is still standing, but. Also, the context of Ruby Dee and Ossie Davis, who are activists themselves. So there's an extra bit of weight. I mean, uh, Ossie Davis was good friends with Malcolm X. He yeah. gave his eulogy. So it's, it's the there's so much poignancy in that moment, if you understand the historical context of those two. And even if you don't, the two elders saying, we're still standing. There's something about it. There's a power in that. And as the camera goes out, you know, we see them walk towards the window. And then Mookie walks up to Sal, who clearly has been there all night. Yeah, of course. Just same clothes. What do you want? I want my money. I want to get paid. As you said, the audacity, the shamelessness. Yeah. Because, because Sal saw him. The next thing Sal says. Your money couldn't begin to pay for the window you broke. Sal knows that Mookie started yep. what happened last night. Now, it might have happened anyway. Right. But Mookie started it. Motherfucker, when the Raider Rahim is dead. This is this idea of property versus people. I know he's dead. I was here. You remember? He's dead because of his buddy. That cocksucker started all this shit. He's responsible for that kid's death. And I'm like, no. 
the cops are responsible for that kid's death. Yeah. Is bugging out a, a piece in the journey that got you there? Yeah. So Sal breaking that radio. So there are a whole bunch. So's the heat. There are a whole bunch of things that got us there. But the cops killed Radio Rahim. One cop killed Radio Rahim, to right. be clear. And you stood there like a fuck, and you watched them burn me down. I watched it. I also watched the cops murder Radio Rahim. You didn't get over from the fucking insurance anyway, Sal. You know the deal. There's a reason why Danny Aiello had an Oscar nomination for this. You see this fucking place? I built this fucking place with my bare fucking hands. Every light socket, every piece of tile. Me with these fucking hands. You know what the fuck that means? There is so much here, you know, because Mookie comes in. You know, like he's an imperfect messenger, man. He really is. I mean, he comes in, kicks the can. Yeah. In a way, kind of foreshadowing what they're going to talk about, the death of Radio Raheem. He kicks that can into the trash can. And it's really interesting. And, and you know, as a young man, I, you know, watching the film many times, I'd never kind of caught this. But after Watchmen, the HBO show, listening to a dude, uh, a white guy, complain about and be angry, legitimately angry for himself, for his own experience about how he built this place with his hands, every light socket, everything. He built this place with his hands, feeling the loss of that, right? Um, and you're right. It's not comparable. Let's bring Radio Heem's parents come in. I yeah. built this kid with my genetics, my body, and I raised this kid. How much did I put into the raising of this kid, you know? Or if you want to expand it out, if when I'm talking about Watchmen, the Tulsa Wall Street situation that happened, how many black communities were destroyed by jealous white people through the history of this country when they became successful communities, when they became communities that made money or that made white people look bad because they were making money more than other neighboring towns? There's a history of that in this country. They also built those communities with their hands and every light socket. And white people came in and burned it down and killed and raped and murdered a bunch of uh, a number of black people. So there's so much here in context. If you, you know, know the history or study history of, of what's gone on in this country and in numerous countries. And it's also interesting that Spike is wearing African colors mm. in terms of his shorts and his um, underpants. Right. But he's wearing Sal's shirt. So I, you know, it's very interesting. So he's representing the culture in that moment um, and the African connection to it in that moment as he goes back and forth with Sal. Also, the framing of this, Mookie has always looked smaller than Sal, but in the shot from below, they look like the Battle of the Gargantuas, that old damn movie because they both look the same size. They're almost leaning in as if it's Godzilla versus King Kong in this battle here. And Sal really disrespects Mookie by crumpling up the bills and throwing at him. And Mookie picks up two of the bills and throws it back at Sal and says, I owe you 50 bucks because he only owed me 250 not 500 It's defiance in this back and forth between both of them. You know? Him throwing the money, it made me feel like when... A- when I was young and my dad would, when you get, would you get spanked? Don't ever do that <laughs> yeah. again. He was throwing that money at him. So hurt. And it, it, you can hear that he's hurt though. Isn't it interesting? Yeah. Sal's hurt. Yeah. Yeah. 
He's not just mad. He's expressing his hurt and his pain. And I think it goes back to what you said, Steve, about the pseudopod. Like mm. he he's broken here. And the way that this moment wraps up, and I know you'll get into that, it just it, it actually reveals a lot more about how they feel about each other than one would think mm-hmm. based on what just happened in the uh in the in the riot. Probably a less than 12 hours ago. He said Mookie's always been like a son to him. Yeah. It's not long ago. It was probably midnight and maybe it's 7 a.m. now or something, mm-hmm. you know, and I'll tell you. So I, I can I, I can, you know, cry at a movie. Uh, usually when I cry at a movie, you know, it's the sentimental stuff. It's to my brother, George, the richest man in town. It's mm-hmm. it's field of dreams. It's, you know, dad stuff. It's you know, that's the stuff that makes me cry. When I started crying at this moment, it wasn't sentimental crying. I literally was sobbing. Like my shoulders are going up and down. And what I was sobbing for was because what Spike does is show in this scene yeah. is so show how deep and profound and unsolvable this is. Mm-hmm. He and, and it was that that made me so it was despair that I felt. And that is what and that and the throwing the money at each other and just and, and yeah it just is so difficult um and then there's this weird mo- moment the money is on the ground between them yeah hmm. mookie refuses to pick it up keep it you keep it you keep you keep it. it you keep it. you keep it i love that i don't believe this shit believe it are you sick i'm how's a motherfucker i'm all right though well, they say it's even going to get hotter today. And it's so weird because yeah. we've like reset to small talk. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's father. This son. goes back to where he said he's like a son. Yep. Mm-hmm. It's father son stuff. Absolutely. Father son stuff. Cause Steve, I mean, Andre, I think all three of us have fought with our father before in some pretty brutal mm-hmm. ways verbally. And then afterwards you come back when you've calmed down and it's the small talks a little easier than saying, I'm sorry. So the small talk is a way of kind of smoothing things over a little bit and trying to move on. And Mookie senses that's what I think Mookie senses that's what Sal is doing. So he kind of cuts it off and says, I got to go see my son if that's all right with you. And then picks up the fucking money anyway, which is really. If neat. that's all right with you, like yeah. he's going to come back for a shift. It's crazy. It's yeah. <laughs> true. No, seriously. And Mookie leaves. And senior love daddy sees him. And then what he says is that the mayor of New York is going to investigate this. And what he says is the city of New York will not let property be destroyed by anyone. End quote. There is no mention of Radio Rahim. Yep. Where what the city of New York is concerned about is the property. Yeah. The camera is pulling back. We see people in Sunday dress going off to church. We see people playing basketball. The neighborhood is going back to the neighborhood after all this madness everything goes back to normal uh people are playing amongst the scattered pizza boxes and trash on the ground because violence in these communities is an everyday occurrence so in the moment it's explosive and then the next day the community moves on uh and that's unfortunate uh not that they move on, but that there is this kind of violence in these communities. We also hear register to vote. Oh, you're right. You're right. It's important to vote. 
and that you can win some money as well on their their cash contest or whatever that they're having at the radio station. The next record goes out to Radio Raheem. We love you, brother. And we fade out. And then we get two quotes. I'm going to read this in its entirety because I think it's important. Yeah. Violence as a way of achieving racial justice is both impractical and immoral. I'm, I'm not, not unmindful of the fact. fact that violence often brings about momentary results. Nations have frequently won their independence in battle. But in spite of temporary victories, violence never brings permanent peace. It solves no social problems. It merely creates new and more complicated ones. Violence is impractical because it is a descending spiral, ending in destruction for all. It is immoral because it seeks to humiliate the opponent rather than win his understanding. It seeks to annihilate rather than convert. Violence is immoral because it thrives on hatred rather than love. It destroys community and makes brotherhood impossible. It leaves society in monologue rather than dialogue. Violence ends up defeating itself. It creates bitterness in the survivors and brutality in the destroyers. Martin Luther King. Mm. I can't say anything. I can't add anything to that quote. <laughs> it is so powerful. And th but then the next quote is also powerful. I think there are plenty of good people in America, but there are also plenty of bad people in America. And the bad ones are the ones that seem to have all the power and be in these positions to block things that you and I need. Because of this situation, you and I have to preserve the right to do what is necessary to bring an end to that situation. And it doesn't mean that I advocate violence, but at the same time, I am not against using violence in self-defense. I don't even call it violence when it's self-defense. I call it intelligence. Malcolm X. And then, what is our last image? Is the picture of them that Smiley put on the wall. Yeah. It was the only time they ever met in person. That's documented. And it was early on. And uh, MLK always, well, spoke about how he didn't, like the way Malcolm handled things. And of course, Malcolm, just as he was making the turn into being more accepting of a brotherhood amongst numerous uh, ethnicities and colors, was shot down, was assassinated. And then MLK, of course, on the precipice of change in 68, assassinated himself. And I think this has been Something and I'm you know I'm not speaking for the black community. Of course, I can't speak for the black community, but I know in having conversations with many black friends over the years, these are the <sighs> rivaling philosophies, right? Nonviolence versus uh, self defense or violence, and um, the film still resonates uh, so powerfully because of how it shows both sides of it, you know, and yeah. the conversation about it. I mean, can I ask you guys this: Do you think? When Sal builds back his restaurant, that photo will be on the wall. That's a fucking great question. I don't think Sal builds back his restaurant. You don't? No. I think he takes the insurance money and he moves on. Hmm. That's what I think. But 
when he moves on, do you think he moves on and puts up a picture of uh, um, Martin Luther King? My gut is no. Yeah. My gut is because I don't think, I don't think Sal understood before. <laughs> and, and I think he understands less now. Yeah. And maybe if he had a son in Pino Vito under who seemed intelligent enough to understand what was happening, they could convince Sal to understand, but neither one of them showcased that at all in any of the interactions that we saw in the movie. I think in fact we never not only does he build back his restaurant oh. because he's says he's got nowhere to go, mm. nothing else to do, and the and the whole neighborhood has gone back to it's like it's like a reset. It's like <laughs> they're acting like there's no big problem. But I I also think that he puts it back on the wall. Wow. Without saying anything. I love that. It's like his way of of not apologizing, but a quiet acknowledgement. I don't think he knows to do anything else. Uh, he's a member of the community. Uh, he's not a visitor. He's been here 25 years. He's in multiple generations. Live off his food, as he said. So, Andre, you might be right. It's not out of the realm possibility to consider that he would rebuild his restaurant with help from the community, possibly. Uh, and then, yeah, understand to put uh, black men on the wall. <laughs> I mean, because I don't think men. I think you just put that picture. That's oh, maybe just that out picture, of, out of respect. I think mm -hmm. only that photo. I don't think anything else would go up with that photo. Yeah, I, I mean, mean the, he'd have his regular people. But the interaction he has with Spike at the end, with Mookie at the end, shows you that he was like, he's not, he's he's almost calming down in how he's talking to Mookie as a father to a son uh, before Mookie ends the conversation and walks off, supposedly to go take care of his kid um, or see his son and. That shows you that he could forgive what happened and rebuild his mm. um, restaurant. So, yeah, that's, I never considered that he yeah. would rebuild it. Never even occurred to me. That's so great. And the last thing we see is from the heart of Bed-Stuy. The film is dedicated to Eleanor Bumpers, Michael Griffith, Arthur Miller, Edmund Perry, Yvonne Smallwood, Michael Stewart. And, man, we could add a whole other list of names today. Eric Garner, Brianna Taylor, Amon Arbery, Philando Castile, George Floyd, and on. And there's going to be, and if we watch this movie 10 years from now, we'll be able to add more names to that list. Sadly. Oh. Sadly. In post, the editor is Barry Alexander Brown. Uh, he made one comment that I found interesting, which is he said he didn't understand the script until he started cutting the movie. Oh, oh, oh wow. Um, uh, a little bit on its reception. Siskel and Ebert both named it the best film of 1989. Both also named it one of the top 10 movies of the decade. Other critics panned it or criticized it. Some people thought that Spike Lee was trying to create violence, that people would see this and they would riot. And Spike's response was, do people riot after seeing an Arnold Schwarzenegger movie? People can watch <laughs> violence. It doesn't mean it's going to cause violence. Another criticism, which I find hilarious, was, again, of course, it's white critics who said they didn't believe it because there were no drugs. Aren't there drugs in these neighborhoods? And, and, Sp and Spike's response to that was, I just watched Wall Street. Aren't there drugs? And there's no drugs in that movie. You're saying there's no cocaine on Wall Street? Like, <laughs> it's just ridiculous, ridiculous uh, criticisms. Yeah. Entertainment Weekly listed it at number 22 of the most controversial movies ever made. Interesting. It was nominated, as we said, for Supporting Actor for Danny Aiello for a screenplay. 
Denzel Washington won for Glory. Um, Denzel Washington's great in Glory. Yes, yes. I mean, I don't, can't think of anything where Denzel Washington isn't great, frankly. Um, but it's a it's a very different movie. And Dead Poet Society won for Best Original Screenplay. I totally like Dead Poet Society. I don't think it compares as a screenplay. Yeah. Um, you mean a, a screenplay about an all white rich kid school? <laughs> well, I, I look. I'm fine with there being movies about all sorts of things. Sure. <laughs> um, I look. You're not going to get me to say I don't like Dead Poet Society. I'd I'm like not Dead saying Poets. don't like it. I'm saying there's no way that screenplay. I mean, there, the, it's no surprise that they voted gotcha. for that screenplay yeah. over a screenplay that is actually about. Uh, the reality of the world and pushes the boundaries of what film can do. Um, and that's the difference. And that's what's supposed to be winning awards at these yeah. prestigious um, ceremonies like the Oscars. Oh, like when Denzel didn't win for hurricane and Kevin Spacey won instead of one for a training day. Uh, well, let's start in, uh, let's stay in 1989 driving. Miss Daisy wins best picture. Yep. Do the right things. Not even fucking nominated. I mean, yep. ridiculous. One last thing is there is now that street is now named Do the Right Thing Lane mm. in Brooklyn. Wow. Which I think is pretty cool. That is awesome. I'm going to go back to something I said earlier, which is I go back to love and hate on Radio Rahim's hand mm. and that he the first punch he throws is hate in that scene. And that I believe that maybe for me, it is lead with love and I think there are people that look at this movie and go, oh, this is a movie about racism, racism against African-Americans. And I think just saying that gives a huge disservice to what this film is actually about. It is so complex. It is so deep. It has so much of people rubbing up against each other and why their anger builds. And none of these people, with the possible exception of Jade, is a perfect person. Mm. And all of them, at one point or another, let hate lead. And this is the thing. This is what, and this is why I think Martin Luther King and Malcolm X are so important to this film. While I'm a Martin Luther King guy, I completely understand responding to violence with self-defense. That is reasonable to me. But here's the thing. I go back to love and hate. Is that the hard part isn't to just lead with love. The hard part is to have hate come at you and respond with love. That's hard. And I don't judge anyone who goes straight to self-defense. That makes sense. But if we can continue to work towards leading with love a little bit more, maybe, and I hope, I won't say I pray because I'm an atheist, but maybe we could make this just a little bit better, just a little bit better in the future. Um, I will say... Because I think Drake should be the last one to speak, man. Uh, I my final thoughts on this this film, even more so than the first time I watched it, this film resonated with me in ways that I've never experienced before. And you know, getting older, living through our current political climate, which is dead set on vilifying black young men, black men and women again, um, we're seeing it play out in these uh, disgusting. 20 minute question periods from these from some of these Republican senators as they question one of the most accomplished black women ever to be one of the most accomplished people ever to be considered to be a Supreme Court justice, let alone one of the most accomplished black women 
And yet they're so desperate to find something horrifically ugly or terrible to paint her with for their own advancement. Yet again, white men using black people to advance themselves. Uh, And it's disgusting to watch and that we haven't moved on and that there are millions of people in this country who agree with those tactics, sadly. It just shows you that this, this film is still resonant, still powerful, still topical. It's not a time capsule. It's not a time piece. It's not of its time. It is always relevant and will sadly probably always remain relevant in the history of this country uh, because of the unfortunate nature of racism that is so inherent in our community. And, you know, that last quote from Martin Luther King um, talking about violence I'm the reverse of Steve. I'm a Malcolm X guy and I appreciate Martin Luther King. Um, And his words are certainly powerful, resonant and true. And that last line, how it leaves um, bitterness in the survivors and uh, more power in the destroyers is true. And it's certainly something to consider because it's frustrating that there seems to be at times no other way out when logic discussion explanations don't seem to work and people are dead set at not listening to you. And it's really complicated when you see it um, played out in numerous communities from within the community as well. And so there's so much of this that is more tangled as opposed to untangled than ever before. And I think this film really speaks to that um, still. And there's so much to still take from this film um, with that issue. And then artistically, still an incredibly well-made film that if you're a film student, you can break this thing down scene by scene as we have, or even frame by frame within certain scenes and get an education of how to tell a story like this or how to tell or how to shoot a film like this and how to light a film like this how to edit a film like this and how to direct actors in a film like this. So it serves two purposes in educating you both socially, but also professionally and creatively. And that's the mark of the greatest films. And this absolutely belongs in the greatest films category, not in the most controversial films category, EW run by a bunch of white people. (laughs) So just throwing that out there. You know, somewhere out there, there's a probably young black kid who's like, I want to be a director one day and maybe they're not sure if it's possible because maybe they don't know how to shoot a bunch of CGI. Maybe they don't know how to make a, a Marvel movie, but they can tell a story that has happened in their community or a story that they've, that has happened to them. And I think what Spike Lee did, Spike really showed young filmmakers that, hey, if you can tell a story and you can tell it honestly, you've got a shot because uh, truth and honesty will always play in a script. You tell the truth and the play will play. One of our former uh, teachers at Florida State told us, the play will play. And and this, this movie... It inspired me as a director because it reinforces the power of message 
It reinforces the power of story. It reinforces the power of relationships. And everything that this movie is about, from the leading with love and hate, from the police brutality, from the relations between black and and white and Hispanic and Korean, really about people, the, the complexity in people and our own racist tendencies, this movie still holds up. So what does that tell me? That tells me that Spike, his writing is the foundation because his writing has stood the test of time. And what John said and what you've said, Steve, is also true. That I, I hope that this isn't something we have to deal with when my son is starting to drive. You know, I, I hope that this isn't something that I have to uh, uh, think about in, in 10, 10, 15 years, 10 years. And I am at heart a Malcolm X guy because I respond that way. But I strive to be a Martin Luther King guy, so I cannot be, you know, so I can't be pushed. And and I think that Do the Right Thing not only is one of the greatest movies in terms of commentary of, of what happens in, in society, but it's an achievement about a young filmmaker breaking down barriers and how stories are told. And I'm grateful not only to have seen the film, uh, and typically, you know, I'll watch a movie and, I, and it'll affect me, especially if it's heavy. I may be hesitant to go back to it over and over and over again. I'm grateful to have watched it at this moment. So I uh, thank you guys for having me uh, for this film because it gave me a chance to see this from a different light because I'm older and I have kids and I've seen what's happened in the community. And I think that Spike should feel really great, not only about inspiring a generation of filmmakers who maybe they'll never ascend to where he is, but they can always believe that if they tell a story and it's honest and they shed light on on an injustice, that it has a place in this world. Thank you, Andre. That was great. I've just been thinking, I honestly can't imagine having gone through this film without you at this point. Yeah. Thanks, brother. It's been so incredible having you. So that that is what we think of Do the Right Thing. We'd love to hear what all of you think. You, you, we'd love to hear what all of you think. You can visit us on our Facebook page. Just do a search for The Cinephiles. You can follow the show on Twitter at Cine underscore files. On Instagram at the Cinephiles. What is it? Cinephiles podcast? <laughs> um, you could, sometimes it's hard to remember all this stuff. It's an emotional <laughs> movie, folks. It's it's yeah, exactly. Movie. It's an emotional movie. <laughs> but please subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts. Leave your reviews there. You can leave your comments on YouTube. You can subscribe on Spotify. You can buy or stream Do the Right Thing from Cinephiles.net. You can support the show at patreon.com slash the Cinephiles. You can follow me at SR Morris. On Twitter, SR Morris one on Instagram, and man, I could use some Star Trek right now, so maybe some Enterprise incidents. John, how would people find you? Uh, you can always find me at the Roca says on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. The Outlaw Nation on Twitch, all one word there. A lot of stuff happening on Twitch, so come follow me there. And uh, my YouTube channel, youtube.com slash John Roca says, all kinds of stuff happening there. And then also my other two podcasts, The Geek Buddies and The Top Ten, they're out there for you to enjoy as well. Andre, you have been an absolutely spectacular guest. If people wanted to find you or see your work, how would they go about doing that? Well, thank you again, once again, for having me. If they want to find my work, they can follow me on Instagram at Andre Gordon Official, at TikTok at Andre Gordon Official, my Twitter 
I, you know, I took down my personal Twitter because I hadn't really used it, but I have my company Twitter at Four Horsemen Films, which is the same for my uh, my YouTube at Four Horsemen. What is it? <laughs> Emotional <laughs> movie. It's at Four Horsemen Films or at Four Horsemen Studios. But if you search Andre Gordon, it'll come up. But Andre Gordon official on Instagram is where I have most of my stuff. You can find my movies on Amazon, on Netflix, and um, Sony Home Video. There you go. Um, so I think that is it for this week. We will continue the season of Lee with another light classic, Malcolm <laughs> X. That's coming. Uh, I think we have a week off for a live show. And then after that, into Malcolm X on the Cinephiles. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.